We talk every day to groups of two, three, four, five people in our lounge rooms, in the lunchroom at work. Like speaking publicly is actually not a big deal. What are we afraid of? Public humiliation. It's that fear of what if I get up and people don't like me? Or if I stuff it up and people laugh? That 15 minute showcase I did late last year on the new content, I would have delivered that out loud to the wall 15, 16, 17 times, uh, probably 200, 200 hours worth of prep. We've been taught the best way to change someone's mind is to give them a rock solid argument. And so therefore we do that constantly. We do that in terms of public education campaigns and trying to lead people. And the tricky thing is we've discovered not only is that not true, but the opposite is true. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hi, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. In this discussion, we're tackling a common fear, a phobia that so many people experience, from teenagers to retirees. A phobia reported across multiple studies every year as one of, if not the top phobia, and it's called glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. Michael McQueen is one of Australia's, in fact, now one of the world's leading public speakers. He's an award-winning speaker, change strategist, and best-selling author of 10 books. He works with companies like Google, Toyota, and MasterCard, and he's helped some of the world's most successful brands navigate uncertainty and stay ahead of the curve. He's recently published his best-selling book, Mindstuck. It's a cracker, MJ. I've been reading that. It's got text marks on it and Thank thumbnails. You, <laughs> you are known, or he is known, for his engaging, entertaining, and practical presentations. Michael has formally been named Australia's Keynote Speaker of the Year. He's been inducted into the Professional Speakers Hall of Fame. You're way too young for these accolades. Michael lives in Sydney with his wife, Hayley, and his energetic son, Max. And you are one of the people on the professional speaking circuit that I call a friend, I call a confidant, and a role model of what mastery looks like. Michael wow. McQueen, welcome to the podcast. What a lovely introduction. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate that. It's great. Better than saying Michael's a bit of a... <laughs> <That's true. laughs> yeah. Mike's a bit of an asshole. Yep. There's no one else we could get on the public <laughs> speaking circuit. So look, mate, thank you for filling up the numbers. Uh, we, we catch up periodically there's two ways that we normally catch up we're adding a third layer today in the podcast we we often catch up two three times a year at a conference last one was in the gold coast, gold coast that's right yes yeah uh, around september october hello to claxton for pulling that together from my end as well and we had a corridor conversation there and we about once or twice a year go for a walk and talk and have yeah. a coffee so on the gold coast you said hey i'm finishing my book and, and you told me about it. I went, it's a cracker. Let's get you in the studio. Let's talk about the book. But but more so when I think about you, it's the mastery. And, and I'm genuine. I, I mean that when I look at you and I watch you speak, I think a few things. Oh, how can one man have so much talent? It's the old Han Premium oh, gosh, ad. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're humble, but you've worked really hard on your craft. And I know how hard you work. And then people watch you speak and go, oh, my God, he's such a natural. But I want to know the process behind that as well. So rough outline. Number one, the fear of public speaking. Recent studies show that up to 75% of people are petrified at the thought of grabbing a microphone and yeah. talking to people. Two is the art of presenting. So we'll look at three basics of communication, tips and tricks learned over the years. And let's share a few horror stories. I'll tell you about the worst presentation I've done. <laughs> yep. Twitch. Um, I want to know if you've had one of those. Mm -hmm. Have you? Yep. He's normal, Wiz. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> and then we'll talk about the power of persuasion. So let's start with glossophobia. TikTok, I'm trying to be cool like you millennials, right? Hashtag public speaking has over 2.2 billion views. There are hundreds of thousands of videos and creators addressing the common questions around nervousness before speaking. Brain fray, but brain fade or a brain fart and absolutely just feeling anxious about getting up and speaking in public. Yeah. And I'm always hesitant to speak into this too definitively because in a sense, it's not something that I've had to hugely wrestle through. The nerves are there and they're there. For me, they're there when things are in an unfamiliar context. So when I'm speaking, for instance, in a global event and there'll be the teleprompter vibe and you've sent through your script two months in advance and it's word perfect and they that you cannot deviate because they've got eight or 10 translators at the back of the room. That makes me nervous. Because it's no, it's no longer a presentation. You're essentially delivering a script. It's a monologue. And typically, you've also got the large group format. So you've got bright lights. You can't see anyone. It's a very artificial um, environment. In fact, what's interesting about those really large stages, and if anyone who hasn't done it before, the interesting thing is that the moment you get off stage, this, well, I've always found this huge energy lull. It's almost depressive. It's this funny thing. You go from like massive adrenaline focused on this moment. There's no feedback because you can't see anyone. You know they're sort of there and you get off stage and you have this real moment of like, did that go okay? Did so I stuff that up? For anyone listening, if you haven't had that moment, it's what happened to us when we first went online and you do a presentation mm, or a yes. meeting online. Yep. It's right, okay, it's, yep. it's right at 11 o'clock. We've got uh-huh. our next meeting. Bang, close. Yep. And there's no wrap-up. Around this time last year, I was in America. This time of year is the big sales conference, yes. the kickoffs, yep. they call them, yep. MJ. And I did one in Vegas, 10 and a half, 11,000 people. And you're on the stage, you know, big, big lights, big intro, big everything. And you can't see anything. And as I didn't have the scripted teleprompter. I still had a 30-minute window. And I find 30 minutes much harder than a day. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then you come off stage and then the next person's on and you're like, how'd I go? Like, did they connect? So that is hard. Yeah, it is hard. And trying to figure out for you what's going to give you that sense of I I went okay. Because you need to, we, we, we've all got that, that need to know that we, we, we went well. Oh, it's um, one of our basic drivers correct. of fitting in and yeah. feedback and belonging to a tribe. Now, if anyone's listening to this and going, oh, they're two speakers, they're just going to go down a pathway of here's how you speak on global stages. Yeah, we'll cover some of that. But we'll look at speaking on three levels. One is entry level. Yeah. You've been asked to speak at a wedding, uh, at an offsite, uh, at a mate's you know, bucks party, hens party, and mm-hmm. you are so freaking nervous. Yep. We'll give some people tips yeah, around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of our audience, is it's corporate and sports performance slanted. People will be presenting, and I'll call that a workshop. You've got a conference, so the Mighty Manly Seagulls, Thursday we've got a conference, a bunch of our coaches will deliver a 30-minute presentation. And I know for some people that causes a lot of anxiety. So some tips around that. And then those people that call this a profession will give some tips around that as well. But, But back to the whole thing around fear of public speaking. I'm a young guy, full head of hair. I'm going back a while, <laughs> and I see you on stage, and you rip in, and I just go, oh, Mr. McQueen, see how young I am, Mr. McQueen, I couldn't think of anything worse than speaking in public. Help me, wise one. Yeah. What would you say? Well, the first thing is trace it back to what's the actual fear. So typically, it's not getting up and talking, because we talk every day to groups of two, three, four, five people in our lounge rooms, in the lunchroom at work, like speaking publicly is actually not a big deal. What are we afraid of? 
public humiliation, not public speaking or public shame, not public speaking. It's that fear of what if I get up and people don't like me or if I stuff it up and people laugh or they think less of me because I didn't do what I was expected to do. Or we have a sense of what a public speaker is meant to be. And so I would say when you feel nervous, like inadequacy, that I, I can't do it. Firstly, what's the picture you've got in your mind of what doing it looks like? Because probably the doing it, that, that model may not be what your ideal model is. So I'm not a rah-rah speaker. I'm not big energy. I'm actually just, I'm very calm on stage. I'm just like this. And so I remember feeling when I started off early on as a young punk, I was 22 when I started speaking on the circuit, that I had to be like, and then you fill in the blanks, you know, to be like Lisa McGuinness-Smith, or you had to be like David Penglase, or you had to be like um, Alan Weiss over in the US, like these these speakers who were just top of the game. But that's not me. That's you not my vibe. Be you. Yeah, like you have to be you, but you have to be a slightly elevated version of you. So when I'm on stage, I'm still calm, but I'm intentional. Um, there's intentional intentional energy. So it's not just getting up and having a chat because that dishonors your audience. You are there to, de to deliver something, but it's almost like you're just turning up the volume on you a couple of clicks. I like that. A slightly like, just be you. Of you. Like, truly. Because I feel like the moment you get up there and you're, you're trying to be that archetype, whatever the archetype is, firstly, it's exhausting because you're, you're projecting a lot trying to be that. But also, it, for, from an audience perspective, it, it's discordant. It doesn't doesn't work. Doesn't seem right. Um, so I think starting with that, but also realizing that anytime there's nervousness, and this is going to sound so simplistic, but it is so fundamentally true. When you're nervous, it's because you're focused on you. Like if you're standing on stage and you're anxious, unless there's a clinical anxiety dynamic um, playing out here, what's actually going on? is it's all focused on you. You know, will I do okay job? Will they like me? All the rest of it. Will I remember all my points? The moment that focus shifts to how am I adding value? How am I being helpful? How are people going to find this useful? As opposed to will they like me and will they like my content? Like it, the nerves won't entirely disappear, but when it's about the audience, it's amazing how that shifts the entire vibe. The other thing I, I remembered too is that like the David Brent comment from The Office, just to be a chilled out entertainer. I, I There's play, something about that, I, truly. I play clips of that when yep. I'm working with coaches about presenting <laughs> yep. to show what not to do. I love the bit, yeah, the chilled out presenter, but when he comes in and he plays Tina Turner, oh, so you're simply awkward. the best. So awkward. Can I just yep. go back to two things you said? A yeah. slightly elevated version of you. And you want to be a little bit nervous. So for anyone listening to this, uh, my MJ's not saying you go up totally chilled and you're almost you know, comatose. You've got an elevated pulse, elevated heart rate. So you have the physiological shift, the psychological shift. We'll talk about that as well. But you're still you. Yeah. The second thing, I just want to double click on, I didn't tell you this. We gave you a rough outline, but we're going to have a nice natural chat rather than, Michael, question number three. You know, <laughs> no, you've got to answer number three, mate. Come yeah. back, come yeah. back. Yeah. There are four main reasons why people are shit scared, this is the technical term, of speaking in public. Number one is their physiology. They don't know how to control the nerves yeah. and the nerves control them rather than yeah. controlling the nerves. Two is belief systems or schema. Uh, they've seen someone or they've had a bad experience. Often goes back to years and years. They stood up as a, a kid, yeah. something happened, yep. and then they draw back on that decades and decades later. Three, and thank goodness we've got MJ in the house, it's skills and ability. It's totally a learnable skill. Yep to speak yep. properer and betterer. And four, it's context specific. So it's understanding circumstances, specific situations. I think four is very domain specific. So let's go physiology, belief system, skills and ability. Totally trainable. Yeah, totally trainable. And also knowing what your sweet spot is. So my sweet spot is not boardroom. If I've got eight people sitting around a room, that's when I will be nervous. Really? Cause, yeah, because it changes the whole vibe. You don't have 
energy in the room. To me, good presenting is a dance. You lean in, then you lean out and you engage them and they laugh and they respond and they share things and you feed off that energy, which is why online presenting is so difficult. You get so little of that. In a small group, you don't have that energy in the room. Like you've got eight people. If you can feel like the Spanish Inquisition, you know, like anything over 40, you start getting that dynamic of like there's energy in the group, there's a momentum, and it's a bit more of a performance. Once you get past 300, you can't see the eyeballs. Often you've got iMag screens with the video of you up live, and then it changes again. But that sweet spot for me, I love the middle range. Really small makes me nervous, typically. Um, so, uh, Do you do much one-on-one -on -one coaching? Almost none. Uh-huh. Yeah. I look at an executive room or a boardroom like group coaching. Yeah, right. Yeah. And hey, Gary, at the start, you do, you do some onboarding. And I've, I've learned this. I've got to call out Anthony Seabold, coach of the Mighty Manly Seagulls. I've learned a lot working with Seabs the past 18 months. Before presentations, he'll flag. So he'll go and talk to me. Hey, Maisie, at this moment, can you talk about this? So he lets you know a little bit before. So I'll use that that flag before. Hey, hey Gary, what do you want to get out of today? Because if they're thinking, who's this fucking idiot coming here with his shiny head and tight T-shirts? And I could be talking about both of us. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Gary tells me he is really conscious about stepping up to the next level, but maybe doesn't have the confidence. Bang, you put that in your notebook. Marie. Well, what are you wanting to get out today? So it's that coffee conversation at the start if they haven't given you access to all of it. Yeah. And then you have a guided conversation. So the shift I made a number of years ago because I stuffed up a few boardroom presentations yeah. thinking I had to be jazz hands, big presentation, yeah. and I didn't meet the energy. Yeah. It's more like a group facilitation and periodically pick up and yep. then drop back. Yep. Yeah. I've, actually, now that you say that, it's probably what I've learned to do, but it's not a sweet spot for me. Um, what I also find with the small groups, it's essential to go around and every single person touch, shake of the hands, touch on the shoulder, what's your name? And then at the front, I've always got like a little piece of paper and I try and draw a grid of the room and have their names because knowing people's names makes a massive difference. And I can't hold that much in my head when I'm also trying to remember where I'm going with the session or the content. So, but I do try that. That works really well. Once you get past 10 to 12 people, Unless you've got those like superhuman skills of remembering like 30 people's names in a room. I can't do that, but I can do a small group. I think names really help. They make a massive difference. Yeah. And Ange now knows my process and she copies me and who I run Strive Stronger with. But the first time she came to an executive presentation and I, I do exactly what you – it's so funny comparing notes because yes. I know there's a lot that we do similar, yeah. but there's a lot we do different. And yep. I've been looking forward to this because to yeah, tap cool. in as part, you know, for our audience, part for me and a nice mix <laughs> in between. But I'll, I'll draw a grid and I'll put where people are sitting, Michael, yes, and yeah. I'll, I'll draw some glasses. I have a few little uh, cues or I'll have a moustache um, so then I can do recall. And then I find if I do it once or twice, so I go, Michael, yeah, you said you want to do more about stepping up. Wizard, you said you want to learn more about death metal music and bringing that into your presentations because <laughs> you're a bogan who works as an atheist. So you, then bringing that in, I find if I recall once or twice, I can put it away Half a day later, I can then go back and I'll, I'll remember. When I go back a month later, unless they're sitting in the same spot and I have that, ooh, I reckon I get about 50% to two-thirds. Yes. Yeah. It's annoying when you've got a two-day thing and then they move seats yeah. and they, or just change clothes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I had them all down <laughs> pat yesterday. yesterday. <laughs> but yeah, I think those little things make a big difference. So knowing exactly what your sweet spot is. Um, and I think to realizing you don't have to tick all the boxes, particularly if you're in that, that level of speaker we talked about, you've just been asked to MC a friend's wedding. That sense that you in that job, you don't need to be the, the funniest person in the room. Like your, your job is to support what's happening around you, to facilitate that, not to be the star of the show. And so if you've got that feeling, you've got to be like this amazing stand-up comedian, 
then firstly, it's putting a lot of pressure on you because if you don't do this a lot, stand-up comedians, typically, if you watch a stand-up set, they've only changed 3 to 5% of that set from the last show. Um, Have and you so ever done stand-up? Never, but it would. I think it would be interesting but terrifying. I mean, that, I'd be nervous I did that, it. for sure. I just joined KPMG, so we're talking 2016, 2017, yeah. and I went and did a four-week course, and it ended with up on stage at Star City doing a set. What? What's the vibe? I didn't finish it because I did the first night, and I was petrified, and I got up and I, I did it. Everyone had to get up and do two or three minutes. And I froze and I did everything I don't do when I speak. Interesting. And I, like, you know, sporting term, took the gas, was insular, did a couple of jokes, bombed. <laughs> wow. Horrible. Wow. I didn't go back. So on my bucket list is at some stage, soonish, is to go back and do it. Not, not, because I want to be funny. Like, I'm like you. I'll build context-specific humour in. You don't have to be a comedian and make them the hero. Dougie Maloof, God bless his soul, make the audience funny, not you, young fella. But, yeah, I've got unfinished business. Maybe we'll go and do it together. It's interesting. I've never done it, but I know a lot of speakers who have, and they'll talk about it being a very different – like a very different skill to do stand-up, but I'm sure there are transferable skills. It'd be like doing improv. I think doing improv or even I sometimes wonder if I should do movement. Like I'd love to go and do a course in movement or dance because I often don't feel like I'm great at using my body in big arenas because like the big arena, you've got to be larger than life. And I'm not. I'm actually fairly contained and understated in my physicality. But I'm always like, well, how can, what can you do this way outside your comfort zone just to build some of those skills? So. I, 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 I'm Italian the way I present. From born in Wagga, grew up in Dubbo, but I've yeah. been told I, I look like an Italian presenter. So when I'm told to fill up the space, I don't yeah. have a problem with that. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. So the anxiety, the nerves, a lot of it is so controllable. You can control your physiology. You can control your belief systems by having different models and you can learn some skills and ability. So the art of presenting, number two, and and let's look at that model I said at the start. Mm -hmm. If you're just starting and you've got a presentation coming up and you are petrified, listen in. If you're doing workshops and it's part of your job, either paid or part of delivering sales people are presenters, listen in. And those people we call our peers or our homies in the corporate speaking world, definitely listen in. So the three areas I'd like to cover on the art of presenting, one is how to prepare your content and stories, Mm. two, how you prepare your body and your brain, and three, how to prepare your props. So I've divided that very specifically. Now there's a bias, a cognitive bias on this, MJ. That's how I prepare my presentations. I start with a blank sheet of paper and then I'll write down Who's the audience? What's the message? What do I want to achieve? And I'll map it out. And, and this has done the head in on some of my staff. They're on board now yeah. because what most people do is they start, especially with a corporate background, let's put a slide deck together. Yeah. How many slides have you got? There's 50. All right, let's cut it back to 48. Yeah. And they're the presentations that feels like it's dun 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 mm-hmm. Boring as batshit. No story. No energy. Yeah. Uh, and that middle bit, I can't help, but that's state management, mm-hmm. body and brain. So one- 
content and stories, two, your body and brain, three, props. How do you prepare a presentation? So it depends if it's a content where it's iterative. So if I've got maybe 60% of the presentation I've done before and I'm just adding the 40%. So if I'm doing that, for instance, then it's a case of um, knowing exactly my flow. So I I use notes sometimes, but often I use my slide deck as my note because it gives me a visual sense. I'm very visual. So a visual sense of how much content I've got. So I want to avoid too many words. So most of my slides, if you look at my slide deck and often, you know, clients will say, can you send your slides through to send to all the delegates after? So I'm like, you can, but it's going to be of a very little use. Most of it's high-res images, a couple of videos, very little content. I love slides. Yeah, thanks. They're pretty. Yeah, well, I just try and make them really simple. So I use a lot of high-res images with a couple of branding watermarks, so my logo, my website, pasted over the image. Do you um, do that on every slide? Yeah, I do, yeah. Uh-huh. Only because increasingly when people are taking notes, they're not writing notes down, they're taking a photo of the slides. So they're holding their phone up. So if I give them something that's, that's, that's memeable, essentially, they want to take a photo of my slides, it's not going to have just the content, it's going to have my website and my name. Because even if you're a great speaker, at the end of the day, you walk away and get. I listened to five people today at a conference. I can't remember the Who's third speaker's name. Who's that guy that spoke about that stuff? Correct. Really yeah. good-looking bloke, buffed, <laughs> up there, funny. <laughs> Don't think he's done improv. Written ten books. Mori, Mori, something like that. Mal, Mal. But people don't remember, and so like having that those little elements really helps. Um, so if it's iterative, and I've just got like for instance, I've got a slide deck I'm putting together for tomorrow for an event. Sixty percent of it I've done before. Forty percent is either stuff that's happened in the last three or four weeks, and I need to update new trends, new case studies, new data, or just stuff that's specifically for that that client. So I'll actually start with a slide deck in that point, and I'll paste things in around that. If it's a new presentation, that is pretty much written out. So I, 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 I'm not someone who does the mind map thing. I'm visual, but not in that way. So, so you, you'll write the words out. Yeah, big one. Not not always scripted. For some things, I'll script. So for me, the biggest things are transitions. Transitioning between ideas. That's when you derail your presentation. So you can know your content well, but if you know it in modules, but don't know the transitions to get from here to there. Let's pretend I have no idea what you're talking about because I think this is one of those ones that's Uh really important. Okay, yeah. Someone who's listening to this, it's hearing a different language at the moment. Good. Explain transition in normal language. Okay, so let's say I've started off and I've talked about – so one of the points I'll talk about from a trend perspective is I'll talk about thinking revolution, not evolution. And so I'll set that up as an idea and I'll say, you know, it's vitally important that we don't just think about innovation as evolutionary change because continuous improvement is important but it's not enough in a time of rapid change. So I set that up as a content piece and then I want to transition into something that gives it social cred or social proof because you've still got people going, oh, but no, no, we always talk about innovation as evolution. So I don't know I, I don't, don't know if I believe you. So my transition then is the next piece is a quote from Oren Harari, who used to be the head of the business faculty at San Francisco University. His quote, this is great, quotes He's are so in, efficient. In your book. Yeah, super efficient because a quote means if it's someone that either they know or they feel like they should know because of the title or role, they'll go, okay, well, I'll listen to it because of the person and now I don't need to be the one that is presenting the idea and has to back it up. I'm just going to jump in again for, yeah. again for someone who's just getting started because this is invaluable. Where were you when I started speaking? <laughs> where were you? You were probably in primary school. That's where you were. <laughs> yeah, well, so how, when did you start? You said you were personal training and then moved into speaking. When was that? Yeah, well, the I'll, I'll tell you the bomb in a moment right. so you don't lose yeah. flow. I started – well, I started speaking at school yeah. and then as a coach, but it was in Hobart, 21, 22, I started a personal training business. But then I didn't really get into keynotes until late 20s, early 30s. We'll, we'll come back to that because I, I thought I was ready much sooner than I was. Right. But but I really do wish I'd had this because I just got up and spoke and uh, some bad 
some were okay, and then eventually after 10 years, it's survival of the fittest. Yeah, yeah. But that that power of a quote, yeah. like that that just is – it's magic. So if anyone's listening to this going, does it really work? Yes. Yeah, it does work. And what I would say now, the thing I've noticed changed in the last five or six years is you've got to have balance in your quotes of gender and background. Okay. And it is hard because typically there's a lot of great quotes from the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, mostly white blokes. And so you want to try and steer clear of that because it, it will derail, even if the quote is a great quote and it makes your point perfectly, if you've just had a whole lot of white dudes in a row being quoted, you've got at least 30% of your audience who are now sitting there and they're going, this guy isn't relevant for me or he's someone who doesn't understand me. or like They're not thinking about I the think content anymore. I think it's higher than 30% because yep. so many more people are aware of that and work in HR, mm, people, yep. group roles. Wiz, what what do I say to you every time that we're putting a video together? What's the guidelines? Yeah, make it diverse, make it you know different genders, different races, just so you can include everyone in it. Different ages, different sexual preferences. I am very attuned to this because at KPMG, I had no idea the unconscious bias I had. All my slides were fit white blokes yeah. most of my stories were about sport yeah. and i was told oh andrew you are not diverse i'd be like, like one of my best mates and i grew up with indigenous friends so i look now you know my yeah. my two eldest kids their mum's danish uh tony my partner's lebanese so my friends call me united nations yeah, yeah. so i've got friends eclectic from all around the world i i am in no way racist i love diversity but I trained so much on what was for me. Yep. It was a real awakening. So yeah. that, that's a really good point. Yeah. Diversity, diversity, diversity. I think it, just, it really helps your credibility. And it also then means that you're engaging everyone, you're including everyone. And it forces you to not just fall into the, the implicit biases we've all got of the people that we gravitate toward because they look like us and they are like us. So here's one for you. You're talking about the Stoics. Who would you quote? Who would you bring in there for some diversity? Because all the Stoics are white men. Oh, that's a great question. So- Old quotes are tricky to find. Um, there's a couple of great lecturers at the moment. So Zoe Chance at Yale is one of those. And she's, she's young, female, just a brilliant thinker. So I try and quote her where I can. There's also a fantastic, I'm trying to think of her name now, a great um, peace mediator. Diane Musho-Hamilton's her name. And she's an older person, but with beautiful wisdom. And so, but she's not super well known, but I love the fact that she's just someone who isn't an academic. She's got much more of a people-focused thing. So I try and it's not just ticking all the diversity boxes because the other thing is you can get to the point, you would have seen this in corporate land, it's almost like when you see a, an advertising campaign, you're like, they have literally tried to tick every box in one photo on that billboard and it almost feels contrived. Like, Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> now I'm going to be vulnerable with you. I, I had, I had a guy, yeah. I don't know him and he listens yeah. to this and I've told this story before and he picked me up on it and said, is that me? I went, yes, it is, champ. So I won't say his name, but he got me to come and watch him do a presentation, large mixed group. And at the start, he said, I'd like to be vulnerable with you. And I'm at the back going, I'd like to kick you in your balls. No, you yeah. don't say I'm going to, you You show vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. You be vulnerable. Oh yeah. dear. It was a car crash. Yeah. And so I think yeah, you've got to obviously lead with you know, as much diverse, as many diverse voices as you can. So I think quotes with that, that, that sort of as a caveat to have with using quotes. But going back to the original theme, so the transition is going from, I've introduced an idea, now it's a quote. I'm going to go from a quote to an application. So it'll be often a case study or a business. And so it's those transitions. That's where I've got to know exactly where I'm going. Because the last thing you want to do, and you see presenters do this, and I've done it myself, we've all done it. The moment you're like, okay, I'm here. I've made this point. I'm not quite sure where I'm going next. Press the next slide deck. Yeah. And what happens typically is you, you, you retreat into yourself. 
And you can see people, they've gone back into their brain thinking, what's next, what's next? You've lost a connection then with the audience. So you spend a lot of time on that transition. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and that's, I, and that's what I'll script. Often I'll script the transitions. And part a big part of my prep is to the wall. My office, my study wall, I speak to it. So if I've got something coming up, but it's a new piece of content. So showcases. So showcases for those who aren't in the professional speaking world are the most terrifying things you will ever do. Uh, do you find the same? Yeah, I do. Although I've shifted. Because if I look at it, it's, it's so loving. That's what I love about a podcast because you get to catch up with good corporate buddies, prepare content, and then it helps you make meaning. So if I look at those four, physiology will – if I can't control physiology, I'm full of shit, right? So my job as a mental skills coach, physiology and psychology. Skills and ability I've worked on, context-specific with multiple areas. Number two for me was belief systems without even knowing this framework because I used to think a showcase, I'm being judged. The bureaus, the PCOs, preferred conference organizers. So two main ways to get booked as a professional speaker, ladies and gents. One is direct. Someone from a bank, a consulting firm, a telco, sees Michael, gets his book and says, hey, we've got an offsite coming up with the executive team. Can you speak? Second way is they'll go to a bureau or for big, big events, a PCO where they put together a monster event and then they say, we want a speaker on uh, sales. We want someone on performance mm. and well-being, someone yep. on generational shifts, and then yep. they come to you. That's right. I prefer the direct stuff. Yeah, though. right. We'll come back yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah, Most yeah. of mine is direct. Where my nerves came from when it was a showcase, I would think everyone in here is from a bureau or a PCO, and it was should. You know, Shooting is one of the automatic negative thoughts I teach my footballers. I should have done this. I should have done that. I could. I would. And you end up shooting all over yourself, and it's really, really messy. So I used to shoot all over myself thinking, oh, the bureau is not going to book me or the PCO is not going to book me. Reason why, when I pulled on that thread schema – I was a personal trainer for a woman that you and I know really well. Hello, Leanne Christie. And I trained Leanne as a PT. And then Leanne got me a booking and I spoke and I wasn't ready. And she kept saying to me, Andy, you're not ready. I said, I am, I am, Leanne. Like I, I've yeah. seen Dougie Maloof. And I reckon I lost bookings for years because of that. Wow. So when I dug into it, the showcases, I was really nervous because I had a bad experience when I was 26, 27. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've unpacked it recently. Well, I think you said the idea with ideal showcase is the one that you get at the last moment if you're prepared. So if you, that's the caveat, if you're prepared. Because I had one a few years ago where, in fact, I think it was a, a showcase that Leanne was organizing in Brisbane and a speaker pulled out at the last minute. And so I wasn't meant to be on this showcase because I'd just flown in from Fiji the day before I had to go to Gold Coast the next day. I was just flying in through Brisbane. And she said, oh, can you possibly do this one before you drive down to the Gold Coast for the next event? So I went to this showcase and it was like, it was proper chilled out entertainer vibe. I'm like, I'll just give it a go, like, nothing to lose. And that was the best showcase I've ever had. So in terms of bookings and all the rest of it. But showcases to me, if, uh, it's an opportunity to really get nervous for those because they do bring out the gold. Often, like, because you've only got 15 minutes. So that's it's it's all the things about showcases. You've got Which a short harder, amount of time. So much harder. Correct. Like the smaller brief, yeah. it's so much harder than a day. Well, you've got short time and you've got to try and tick all the boxes. So, you know, in the room, in the room you've got all these people from different industries. You want to try and flag that you've worked with this industry and that one and this one. So they're like, oh, I can see where this person fits into what we do. Or, you know, you want to be funny and in, in, instinctive and you want to be like really profound and you want to be practical and all like all the things in 15 minutes minutes if you wouldn't mind and so like it is a really intense thing so showcases my prep content wise for that that's to the wall that is to my study wall so i had one late last year all around the new content from the new book and that's terrifying it's like 
the the new album being bought out by someone who's had you know eight smash hit albums it's like the pressure on that album is big and so releasing a new book and a brand new piece of content like i was i was there's a weightiness there like this has got to be good um, because people expect like if they're going to pay high fees they're going to expect it to be bloody great but it's new like it's, it's stuff i've never delivered before so it, it, that pressure i def- i definitely felt so that 15 minute showcase i did late last year on the new content i would have delivered that out loud to the wall 15, 16, 17 times, um, probably 200, 200 hours worth of prep, like just time and time How many again. hours worth of prep? Just so that I would say, let me think about that, because it would be hundreds, over 150, maybe 200 hours over the course of a few weeks. A day, like hours and hours and hours this and hours. Is, this is gold, because people watch someone like you speak and go, he nailed it, he's lucky, he's talented, he's gifted. So you did a 15-minute presentation. How long have you been speaking? So this will be 20 years this year. 20 years? Yeah. How many presentations do you do in an average year? 140, let's say, okay. 130, something like that. So you've done over 2,000 presentations. Yeah, actually, I've got a, I'm a bit, I love numbers. So I'm, I've got 3,600 presentations, I think it has been over the 20 years. You've done 3,600 yeah, presentations in 20 years. Yeah. Okay. So if I was your coach and we started with the beginner's mind, you know, the beautiful Shoshin, Buddhist word, beginner's mind, and you rocked up and said, Maisie, i got this 15-minute presentation, champ. I've done 3,600 presentations in the last 20 years. I've written 10 books and I've got to do 15 minutes. I'm really nervous. You know what I would say? Confidence as a construct is two things, young man. Number one, it's doing the work, and two, it's backing yourself. Yeah. Go and be a slightly elevated version of you. Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? Like, if if I'd said that to you before, would have you done anything differently, or would have you still? I know you'd do the same prep. Do you reckon you could have controlled the nerves, or is that something that that keeps you alive? And I, I love that you still get nervous because if you've been speaking for twenty years and you rock up and you take it for granted, your career's over. Yep. Yeah, and everyone else will end it for you. Correct. Yep. Um, yeah. Certainly, the nervousness for me—it's not—it's not crippling nervousness. It's that heightened sense of um, intentionality. Like I really, I really want to do justice to the content. And so when I say like two hundred hours, we're talking in the in the months leading up to. I started working on the content for that showcase months in advance, and it's just talking out to the wall, talking out to the wall. Like in a, in the week or so leading up to it, I did like days of pre, like presenting that content because what I find is that as I'm speaking to the wall and presenting the ideas and telling the stories. You'll make linkages you've never seen in your content before. So all by yourself? Are yeah, you yeah. watching video back, nah, listening? No, 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 just on my own. Do you think you may have even crossed the line on doing too much? And this is probably yeah, a bias, a n equals one. I don't me. think so. Not with this content. There's probably a point where you can. Um, because you'd, what I like is when I get up on stage, if I'm well prepared, then I can rest into it. If you're well prepared, whereas if you go in and you're sort of winging it, it's like that the ideal mode, and you see this often with great performers, it can see like, seem like it's off the cuff, but actually it's all of the work that's gone in to get them to the point. Flow is that beautiful intersection yeah. between you're being stretched yep. and you've got the resources or skills to back it up. So when you speak and you're in flow, there's not a better moment. You're there and you're on stage, but you feel slightly elevated. Yep. You're, you're one or two slides ahead. You're one or two stories ahead. And you can just pick stuff. Your memory works. There's a beautiful scene. The character Will Ferrell plays on Old School. And he does this presentation. He's taking away the Okinawa principle. Have uh-huh. you seen that? And no. he, he nails it at this yeah. like it's old school. He goes back as a mature age student. And he comes off stage and he goes up to his mates and goes, how do I go? How do I go? <laughs> Recent research has shown that empirical evidence for globalization of corporate innovation is very limited. And as a corollary, the market for technologies is shrinking. 
As a world leader, it's important for America to provide systematic research grants for our scientists. I believe strongly there will always be a need for us to have a well-articulated innovation policy with emphasis on human resource development. Thank you. What happened? I blacked out. Because he's brain, and I get this off stage. If you ask me a question sometimes after I've presented, I'm mush. But when you're in flow, your recall, your storytelling ability, your linkage, your your whole awareness. So, so let's shift this naturally to that second part. When you're talking about this showcase, what did you do for state management? We'll, we'll talk about your brain. Did you do any journaling? Did you do any work on catching up with, hey, I've done this loads and loads of times? Or was it just prep, 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 prep? Um, so pre- on the day, for me, energy management's a lot about on the day. So when I get to the venue, I hit, that's how I shift into that mode. Um, so as soon as I get there, it's meeting as many people face-to-face as I can, meeting the AV team, getting to know their names, meeting a couple of delegates over the lunch break. Not too many, because otherwise, if you're unless you're massively extroverted, that'll drain you. But I need to meet enough people so that that feels like the conversational mode's already started because then when you get up on stage, it is like having a conversation. Um, so I think that's really important. I try and get there. The, the worst thing for me is if I get to a venue and they stick me in a green room at the side and I meet nobody. That's horrible, isn't and it? And then I have to get on stage. Yeah, 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 like you just, you haven't got a feel for the group or the room. So in that instance, I got there early enough to be able to listen to a couple of speakers before me meet a couple of people, get a feel for how the day had gone, how people were traveling, what was the vibe of the group. Um, so that really helps. Also meeting the AV team also really helps because it gives you that sense of confidence that everything's sorted. And once, once all the AV is sorted, that's another thing you can just remove mentally off the list of things. You know what that we make call this nervous. in sport, what you're doing? It's a pre-performance routine. Yeah, right. And yep. a pre-performance routine I'll divide into three areas. There's the day before the night of. There's the morning of, assuming it's an afternoon or an evening game. So it's waking up, physiology, going for a walk, getting some sunshine, not being on your mobile phone, not getting distracted, but not heavy exercise, just waking the body up. And then it's shutting down. So you've got a keynote, let's say it's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, the the dreaded spot where the AV team will say, oh, Michael, we want you to come and do this global showcase. You're going to be in a different time zone. Pregnant pause. Do you do 3 p.m.? Because you know that's when a lot of people are crashing. If you're speaking at 3 p.m., what do you do before that so your energy, your physiology is on when you come oh, out at 3 questions. So I had one of these just late last year. So I, it had been at the end of, I'd, I think I'd had five events that week. And it was the last one of the week. It was a Friday afternoon in Brisbane. I'd flown up that morning. The flight was delayed. There were just a whole lot of things. By the time I'd gotten there at like 12.30, I felt like I'd done an entire day already. That, you know, that sort of feeling. And I got there, I'm like, I feel emotionally drained. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty zapped right now. And so I'm like, I had about an hour before I had to start. I thought what I actually need to do is get out, go grab a coffee and just sit and have silence. Go over my notes, get my head into gear, then go back in, then have the 20 minutes of whipping around and meeting the people and getting a feel for it and then jumping on stage. So it's, to me, it's a bit of a balance. I, I, one of the things I will rarely do before an event, particularly when you fly in the night before, and I'll say, we're having the welcome function, the drinks out on the lawn around the pool or whatever. Do you want to come and join? I'll always find a convenient excuse not to go. Because I'm I've got a really bad rash and I'm contagious <laughs> and right. whiz. I don't know what it is. I have a little Any Anything will do. I get um, that. I'm, look, I love people, but I find the night before if you've gone there and you've had alcohol. So I, so now I don't drink the night before a big right. keynote. Yeah. Um, I really do treat it like an event, like it's sport. So I have the whole night before, get to bed, all your notes are ready. Never prepare your notes the morning of. You train energy. 
wake up, connect with family if you're traveling, which a lot of our work is, go for a walk or a lightweights or a swim, have a coffee. So it's a nice relaxing morning. And then so you turn up and you're in a good state. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I find that really helps. Because the other thing I find vocally is if I go to that welcome function, I don't know what it is about, and I think it's it's blokes' voices generally. So because of the range that most blokes' voices are at, unless you've got a really bassy voice, it's a resonance that doesn't get cut through in loud rooms. So I can feel like I'm shouting, and you can the other person's like, sorry, I can't hear you. And it, like, it's honestly one of the most exhausting environments for me. So it's exhausting mentally and emotionally, but for my voice as well. So I just don't go to them for that very reason. So I'm super happy with my own time, my own space and silence, and I spend a lot of time in hotel rooms just in silence. I, I don't listen to stuff. I don't turn the TV on. I just, I'm very happy in that mode. So I, that that works for me. And that tends to be when I do, often like I'll have a, the night before, I'll also do one or two more run-throughs of certain key parts of the presentation that might be new or fresh to the wall in the hotel room. I just, all that stuff of just really condensing it down. The number of times I'll say something and I'll go, oh gosh, I hadn't even thought of that, that way of using language. Or maybe there was some alliteration I hadn't considered before or but I, I can read my notes over and over again, but when I say it out loud, that's when you hear those things, that's when the connections come together. So often I'll have the night before a bit of that, speaking out to the wall, and I go, oh, that was great, I didn't even think of that before. And Because you don't want to have those things after you get off stage and you've missed the moment. You want to have them the night before. If and you can. for people listening, no matter what level, introduction, workshop level or keynote level, this is so important. I don't think I really started applying what I've done in sport, one as an athlete, then as a coach now in mental skills. I don't think I really started doing this until I'd say my early 40s. So I'd been speaking for a decade and I was making some of the fundamental mistakes on physiology, psychology, not controlling state. I'll now, uh, I've adapted principles from the military and we use this for every online presentation with Stride Stronger. I use it for every presentation I do. It's a refocus and the refocus can like two or three minutes just before you go on stage, but you've got a whole process on that. And so if someone's, if if you're presenting, if it's a meeting, it's not a big presentation with big rooms and interpreters, but just before you step on stage, just get clarity. Number one, what's the context? Who's in the room today? Number two, what does success look like? in that and number three what are the main messages i'm going to deliver and then just that simple context will give you clarity and i learned this from the military and also sport it's called a debrief you get off stage what worked what didn't what can i do better next time and then down regulate or recharge so it's just the refocus you know the replay what worked what didn't what can i do better next time and like in tennis they'll bounce the balls in between sets then you have that recharge so i I find that works really well when you're helping people to start presenting yeah a bit of a frame and in terms of memorizing stuff to help that process memorize the first 30 seconds I have that like really down pat. Like I have a series of phrases or things I'll do at the beginning of honestly 90% of my presentations. So typically it'll be something like, thank you so much for, and I'll name the two or three people that have invited me to be here. I'll thank the MC who's introduced me. Thanks to Peter and Carly and Rachel for the invite. Great to be able to spend some time with you today. Look, we've got, I've only got a really short space of time together. We're going to dive straight in and I'll even do the click. It's amazing how like that just, everyone goes, oh, this person do has you got a plan. Practice like, this in the room. So do you no, know? No, this is probably not so much now. So but muscle memory. Yeah, it's muscle memory. Yeah, it's that, muscle yeah. memory. Yeah. But and then I'll, I'll go into a few things. I'll often start off with a little bit of fun. So I'll say, you know, show of hands, how many of you've ever, ever endured a boring or irrelevant presentation? There's always the, oh, you know, most of us have. And then I'll say, okay, second question, how many of you were the one delivering that boring or irrelevant presentation? <laughs> and there's always like twenty percent. It's a laugh. It's and now I'm an ally. We're all on the same page. We've all sat through boring presentations, and this ain't going to be it. 
we're going to have some fun today. We're going to move fast. And like it just, when they've sat through a whole lot of presentations that are the same cadence throughout the day, that's different. It's fresh and it's conversational. It's not rah-rah. It's just, it's fun. It's also self-deprecating. You're yep. taking the piss out of yourself a little Correct. bit. And, and yep. this works globally yeah. to Dougie Maloof, God bless him. Yeah, make other people the hero. Make yeah. the message the hero. Don't be the hero. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So those things, I think memorizing that, having a clear sense of those opening remarks, because the first 10 to 15 seconds, what are people desperately hoping for in a speaker? Can I rest and listen? Am I going to be nervous, anxious? There's nothing worse than as an audience member sitting there going, oh, gosh, this person's bombing. That's stressful for everyone. Like, and, and it's helpful, I think, to remember is when you're stepping on stage, everyone wants you to win. Because if you do great, they enjoy the process. If, if it's awkward for the speaker, it's awkward for the audience, it's going to be a long 30 or 40 minutes. This is one of many open loops I want to call back on. That's, mm. that's beautiful. When you shift your whole mindset and intent, you said that word very clearly at the start, it's intentional, mm. that I'm here to serve, I'm here to deliver a message. It's not about me, it's about them. That's, it's, it's great knowing that the audience wants me to succeed. The audience wants me to survive. They don't want to see a trapdoor and I explode because then they're going, here's one hour of my life I'll never get. Correct. Back. Yep. Yeah, exactly that. So they want you to do well and I think that just that shifts the whole tone. It's not, not about winning favour now. Do they like me? Am I cool enough? It's like I'm going to stand here with confidence and certainty and that can, that's going to set the audience at ease. I think that's one of the most important things you can do. One more on the physical side, voice. Have you had have you had voice lessons, Michael? <laughs> How? A little bit, yeah. yeah. So a little bit over the years. I'll do vocal warm-ups. Or, or not most days. I'd say no, most days, not all. There are times where vocal warm-ups are difficult. So if I get straight off a plane, into a car, back at the convention centre, straight on stage, oh. often, like, there's nowhere to do it. So I do the whole pinch your cheeks and... And with every run of that, you can get higher and lower, higher and lower. Um, so just give me, give me an example. So it'd be. Sometimes, if I'm tired, I'll notice I can't get high. That's when I realise my voice is not ready yet. So I'll just literally just breathe deeply and then do that again a couple more times, a couple more times. Um, warm tea, not milky if you can, if you're feeling your voice is a bit sketchy. So like peppermint tea, I always find to go. I always have peppermint tea in my bag because they often don't have it. Like I, I have peppermint and, and licorice. This there is funny. Yeah. <laughs> so that helps. Um, and this that, that just gets your voice sort of warmed up, but also physicality. So what happens as you're doing that, your, your neck elongates as well. So physicality also gets warmed up and sort of limbered. Can I just step out of the conversation for a moment? Wiz, I'll draw on you. How much work does this guy do behind the scenes before a one-hour presentation? It's crazy, huh? Yeah, I've been trying to count and I've lost count. You've lost count. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to get you in. Yeah. And you've already delivered, so you can get out of here now. Let's, let's, <laughs> have we ever finished a podcast halfway during and just said, mic drop? That'll do. Not without mm. technical issues. Yeah. yeah, true. Good point. It's the work behind the scenes. It's the reps and sets that people do in a non-pressurized environment that allows you to step up in the moment. So yeah. I, I, I knew we'd have a good chat. Yeah. I just want to say thank you. And, and I said at the very start, I, I do really look at you as a role model, but you do more work than I even thought. Yeah, right. But this is this is extreme preparation. I don't do it every time. As no. in like, I do the voice no, every but, time, but yeah, yeah. But you've done- That's very kind. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of- reps and sets so you can step into it and you can draw on it but in the early days you did a lot of this yes. so the point i want to draw if you want to get good at speaking it's not just the speaking mm. yeah yep you got to all do the work the behind the stuff yeah. yeah and that, and and that's that's very kind thank you and the other side of that is that there'll be times where the client says just come and do your thing 
Like, well, they don't even want you to customise. Yeah. Like, how, how good is that? When it's unbelievable. Does like, that happen to you more now? Obviously more now than when you first started because they know yeah, you, you have a brand. a little bit. Yeah, so it is – you go through this transition where initially it's all about your content. They don't really care who you are, what your credibility is. Like, is the content going to be valuable? Then it's a bit of a mixture of the two. They want you – as the presenter, but also because your content's good. I think I'm just getting to a point, as in only the last probably six to eight months, where people will say, we want to book you. What would you like to speak about? Or what are you working on at the moment? What's your research been? What's your latest book been? That's really new for me. I'm not used to that, but that's I'm an interesting I'm really mode. exploring bondage at the moment and adult fetishes. <laughs> get a, get a work a treat, can you imagine? But yeah, it is funny. Like that, It is a strange thing when you get to that point where they're like, we actually don't... See, see the way you wrapped me up on that really quickly? It was very <laughs> like, clever. That's all the media trading he's done there as well. Yeah, isn't yeah, up, don't isn't answer, it? don't play that. <laughs> so it's what you're doing within scope. With yeah, your, your work, yeah, yeah. Which so is saying nice. that, hey, we trust you, we respect you, we've worked with you. Yeah. Turn up, but it's taken you decades to get to that. Correct. Yeah. yeah, so it takes a while. Preparing your props. So you've done content and stories. You're always working on it, and even a presentation you've done, you said you'll have the deck sixty to eighty percent, and you'll drop in specifics. Yeah. The body. There's some great examples there. Your brain is always working. So props, slides, because this is where people get unstuck. They mm-hmm. do the slides straight away. For a lot of people, PowerPoint. They go and do a PowerPoint deck, and then they're racing through the slides. Yeah. So can you talk to me how you go about putting a presentation together, a new presentation with slides? So I would look at, for instance, how frequently do I have things that break up the energy? So if I've got, let's say, a case study and then a story, and then a quote. Like that's too many things together that are all voice-driven, one-way, one-dimensional me presenting content. So I'm like, okay, what do I want to sandwich in there that's going to lift the energy? It might be a joke. It might be a turn to the person next to you. It might be just something that makes – it might be like a short video clip that makes the point. But sometimes, I mean, every now and again, it can't be gratuitous, but a video that – like it's it's mostly connected to the idea, but also it's just a bit of fun, a bit of spice, just adds adds that energy and levity to the session. So to me, that's when I'm doing the debriefs, particularly with really new content. I'm going over and looking for the energy spikes. When do people laugh? When do people lean in? When do they take photos of the slides? I know um, Leanne Christie's done this recently. She started when she listens to new speakers she's working with. She's got a series of graphs, like it's basically two axes, and they're tracking things like laughs. Um, the, or the, the, the moment the audience sort of has that knowing nod or the elbow to the person next to them when they take photos of slides. Because you can then track just with a simple line graph, when's it, when's it rich? When are people really engaging? Because if you've got sections where it's not there and it's all a bit monotonous, you've got to spice that up. Because the moment they switch off, first thing they do, grab out their phone and they're checking out the news. They're looking at their email. Once they're down that rabbit hole, it's hard to get them back. They might come back to listening, but they're now their attention's split because they started reading something on their phone. And like you are ideally the phone switched on, engage with the world outside the room is the enemy. Because mm. I get them to put it away sometimes. If I've got a presentation, especially now I'm talking a lot about focus, because focus is a muscle. Yeah, yeah, the opposite yeah. of focus is distraction. Yeah. So I'll say, uh, who here in the room would like more focus and you know, make a bit of a joke like you've done? Well, let's run an experiment. Can I get everyone, if there's tables, can I get you to pull your mobile phone out of your pocket? Can you give it a kiss? Tell them you're going to be back. You know, you're not seeing anybody else. You know, have a bit of fun with it. I love you. I'll be back. Now put it in the middle of the table. We call it a parking lot. Yeah. And you can see people are laughing most. And some people are looking at you going, you're a wanker, mate. This is the worst shit show, shit show I've ever done. And then I'll say, look, some of you right now are looking at me like you hate me. I totally get it. 
just run with me. 15 or 20 minutes, I'll give you time to connect with your loved one and come back. And then you, so you frame it, have a bit of fun, come back at the end and go, right, who struggled with not having the mobile phone to start with? Most hands go up. Who found they lent in, listened more, learned more because you didn't have the distraction? I reckon so it can be a really good learning in that, yeah. but you've got to frame it. I, I framed it one time, not like that. It was like, can everyone just turn their mobile phone off uh, or put it onto silent? And it was that with, never works. It was with Telstra. And I remember <laughs> I was just All before clients. David Thody, who was the CEO yeah. at the time, and Stuart, who was running wholesale, stood up and went, right, no, no, look, Andrew, good intent, because I'd work with his team. Uh, but can you please turn your mobiles onto silent? Don't turn it off because it mm. impacts revenue. Yep. So choose your audience, ladies and well, gents. Well, choose your audience actually on that note. You talk about like when's when's present, when has preparation not been done really work against you? One for me, I was doing a session on momentum years ago um, for Optus. It was all about personal momentum, them in their teams, all the rest of it. And so um, one of the key points in that is the power of saying no. So you know, setting boundaries around what you invest energy and time and your emotions in, because that's often when we get distracted and all the rest of it. And so one of my key points is around the power of saying no. And I hadn't even thought about this till I'm standing on the platform like, their entire branding is <laughs> yes. And so, because uh, when I said it, I noticed a couple of awkward laughs. I'm like, what are they laughing at? He hasn't read the brief. Correct. But like, if I, if, if that presentation, so that wasn't like a phone or in presentation, but it was one where I'd gone through, I'm like, I know that body content, no need to prepare that because or rehearse that, I know it well. If I'd spoken that out to the wall at home, I would have gone, oh, wait, I can't say that because I bet that's, there are those moments, those are the linkages you miss if you're underprepared. And that was, and they were fine. I mean, it's not like they are, have been forbidden from ever using the word no, like it's not like it's out of their lexicon, but it was just awkward because it was. Did you make a joke of it at the time? Well, no, because I didn't, it, it was only afterwards someone said something about the no. I'm like, oh, that's why they laughed. Oh my. Like I just, it, it would have been a good joke. Like if I'd, if I'd been prepared, but I mentally hadn't gone through that. This is the same yet. guy who rocked up to Nike and said, just don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so we, we could talk about this for hours and I want to move to some personal learnings and stories. Mm. On a slide deck for a 60 minute presentation, how many slides would you normally have? Uh, this would probably surprise you. 115? 115. Yeah. Wow. Maybe 100, and, 100 to 115. Yeah, so that's a lot more than I thought. Yeah. yeah. Because it's mostly high-res images, I'm moving through them fast. And I also use blank slides between most of my slides. So half of those would be black slides with just my branding. Because you don't want to have the slide from the last bit of content you're talking about set up there when you've moved on to the new content. And there may be nothing visually that's relevant for what you're talking about in that moment. So, so you go visual or quote or video and then just logo blank screen so we can have so about 60 slides you'll have in a 60 minute presentation so almost one per minute yeah, yeah i suppose if you're doing stories quotes yeah. the the i've seen you speak a number of times i get to the end and go oh he's finished geez that went quick because it, it is it's a dent 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 it's a drop yeah up yeah. and drop so interesting you're saying that cycle yeah three to five minutes you work on yeah yeah to be about that i'm finding probably with younger generations that needs to be shorter just attention spends. We're all getting worse, but I think certainly younger generations, that attention span thing is shorter. We've grown up on TikTok videos, like they're just shorter, like that sound bite of content. So, but still, I, I think there's value in having long form sessions. I'm still doing 60 minute sessions on average, but it means you ha- need to have a lot more spice throughout just to keep it moving. Are you planning an upcoming conference or company offsite? For the past 15 years, I've averaged speaking at over 50 events each year, and I still love presenting at conferences as much as I did when I first started. 
to explore the different presentations I offer on a range of topics and themes, including physical and psychological well-being, becoming burnout-proof, connection and belonging. That's a new area I'm, I'm really enjoying presenting on. Neuroscience and behaviour change, mental skills and leadership and culture. Or if you'd like to understand our fully integrated conference experience with pre-event diagnostics, activities throughout the agenda, including a morning wake-up, energy breaks, team-building activities and digital resources to embed learning. To find out more information and to download a brochure, go to andrewmay.com slash keynotes. Keep it moving. Let's get to point three. Tips and tricks and tools of the trade learned over 20 years and over 3,600 presentations. God, that's a lot of presentations. That's a lot, isn't it? Have you bombed or had a presentation where you've just looked back and go, oh, shit, if I could do that again, I would do it very differently? I don't know about bombed. I've had presentations where things have gone wrong, like where things I, – I misread the room or was given a bad brief. The tricky ones are when the client is maybe the executive and they've given you the brief of what they want to cover, but actually it's what the audience, it's the opposite of what the audience wants to hear. You're like essentially become the, you're pushing the barrel of the, the executive. And so that pits you against your audience. So suddenly you're walking like, what's going on? Everyone's really bristly with this content. So because you're actually not there to serve that audience, that client. Uh, that, that audience is not yeah, the client. He's a spy. That's tricky. So I've had those before. You walk in and go, I've walked straight into a tense situation, which is not of my making, and I didn't know, but I only heard one voice in the preparation for this, and that was the person who- How did you shift or did you shift ah, that? Good question. So I would have only had a few of those. In that moment, when you're in flight, there's not a great deal you can do. What I'll do is I'll try and soften my language and my tone. I'll just share things as if I'm presenting an idea or an option and then leave it to them to feel like they can pick it up and run with that as opposed to this is an agenda and a message. Because there is something about that forceful language that if, if it's forceful in a way that the audience are going to find confronting, it just they get defensive. They become stubborn. They dig their heels and all the things that you just don't want to do. So the more you can be somewhat neutral, you're just you're the messenger. I think that sometimes diffuses that. So if you sense that in the room, sometimes you honestly don't know why there's defensiveness. Sometimes you walk in a room. I had one last year. It could be a restructure. It could be economic conditions. Yeah. It can be, it's often external. More often than not, it is, yes. is external. Yeah, it is that. There's also those audiences you walk in, there's like there's a vibe here. You can just smell weird. it, can't yeah, you? Yeah, and you're like, I don't know what it is. I can't change it in 45 to 60 minutes in a keynote. Will you call that when you feel it? Or? Uh, no. Only because typically the the cause of that will be in the room. Okay. Like it's it's normally- Hey, hey ladies and gentlemen, we found the problem. <laughs> it's your organization right. chart. It's those 10 up the Correct. top. Where are they? Let's stand up. Well, it's like, you know, if there's that toxic sense of or fear, I mean, when you sometimes have clients that are, there's yeah, that fear. No psychological safety. Like everyone's terrified of stuffing up. You're like, and the person they're terrified of is probably in the room. And so you just want to, Obviously, tread sensitively and carefully. But yeah, those are the things that are tricky. I did have one event last year over in Orlando, the American Hospitals Association, like big event, great client. We've done an AV check. Um, in that instance, I've, I've, I've struggled with this sometimes to run off my own computer or give the slide deck to the AV team. Because the you AV run team. PowerPoint? Yeah. I do, yeah. Were yep. you keynote pre COVID and you shifted like no, I did? I've always been PowerPoint, Have but PowerPoint on Mac. I just I started on PowerPoint, Same. so I was most Same. familiar with it, so I sort of stuck with it. And also because most of the you know, AV teams use. Um, we, PCs. we were keynote like a lot of speakers right. were back in the 90s and yeah. 2000s. And then when COVID hit, Wizard remembers this. I had all these beautiful, like elegant slides, a yeah. lot of pictures. Yep models, quotes, videos, and then using Teams, like it just did not talk yeah. to each other. So we've yeah. gone PowerPoint, PowerPoint, 
It's it's so much easier. So keynote's tricky with teams. I mean, most oh, things are tricky with teams. I, I teams teams is a dog's breakfast. Te- teams and keynote are enemies, right? Really? Yeah. There you Microsoft go. Microsoft makes PowerPoint and Teams, though. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I've always used PowerPoint, but I just I have this this I, I like running on my machine because at least I know that all of the fonts are going to work, all of the animations are going to work. Sometimes you you transfer it on a USB. And if they haven't updated their operating system, like one of my standard fonts is Montserrat. That's one of my standard, all my PowerPoint slides have that. But Montserrat on a PC that's not been updated is an entirely different font. So you'll load the slide deck and all of the like stuff you've spent like a lot of time making you know, the, li- the line alignments of text on your screens all gets messed up. Mm. And so you're, you're, and you're often, presenting and then you got a nervous I twitch. Truly. Well, yeah. you just get up there and sometimes like the text then is suddenly almost off the screen or it's over the image and it just looks unprofessional. And in that moment, no one's thinking, oh, I wonder why, why the AV team, their, their software is not up to date. They're thinking, why is this speaker producing stuff that doesn't match the vibe? Like it's, it's off brand. If it just looks like you haven't, you haven't cared. So things like that, the number of times I'd hand over the slide deck and then it would be like all of that would all get messed up. And then that frantic seven minutes before you go on stage, you're trying to reformat and change font sizes. So I then moved toward having my own laptop on the stage but then that's tricky because of connections and all the rest of it. So this event in America was and interesting. And also if it's speaker after speaker after speaker, it's actually yes. nice to know you get up, speaker four, big day, your slides are ready to go as long as you've got it all Correct. lined up. Yeah. So this one in the States, I had, um, I'd given them the slide deck, the font's all messed up, but I'm like, you know what, f- pick your battles. It doesn't matter, which, it doesn't really matter too much. It just looks a bit ugly, but only I know what it should look like, so that's fine. But they also put my laptop up on the screen as a, as a backup. So I get up on stage, we've te- tested everything, it's all good to go, and we get up there and their computer freezes. And then um, my computer, they go to swap the, the things and the cable is buggered up. And so then we like, so I've got, like I'm on the stage and I've got three AV people sitting next to me fiddling with things. How big was the audience? Uh, 1,600, like it was quite large. Um, and so honestly, and, and there's a whole thing of, at the beginning of most of my side decks is that high energy, fast pace, getting, you know, that sense of momentum, we're, we're moving here, it's going to be fun, it's going to be interactive. And if a lot of that is about key images, slides, activities, things that's very, very image driven, like it's the punchline will be a slide that pops up and that's the laugh. And so I'm like, okay, I haven't got slides right now. I've just got a blank screen behind me. My first 16 minutes of this 15-minute keynote is very slide-driven. Do I, with nothing behind me, just go off script? and just, Or, or is it going to come on in 20 seconds? And then I can regain my moment. Like, that was a really tricky one. I didn't have slides for 25 minutes of the whole presentation. It so was can I... a mess. Really? I think it was a mess. I mean, the client, that was the other thing because I owned it. I said, this is this is awkward. We're talking about AI and the future of technology. We can't even get the slides to work. And not not making an enemy of the AV or pointing them out as an idiot, like just we can't. Like this, isn't this hilarious? And it isn't, so it's just emblematic of how so much of society is. In some ways, we're way ahead. Other ways, life is still clunky and awkward, even in technology. And so that made everyone an ally. And it was interesting how the number of people said, how you responded in that moment spoke far more loudly than what your content was. I was going to ask, can I ask, did you enjoy that presentation more and or did you feel like you connected with the audience more? Uh, No, neither. No, because I was out of flow state. I was in my head trying to edit my presentation. So there wasn't, I was going through doing well. I was like grasping at what can I throw in here? What will be useful? Maybe I'm going to have the whole slide, whole presentation without slides. And if that's the case, how does that change? So thinking on the fly in that moment, 
meant that all the stuff I'd worked really hard to present that I knew would be super relevant, because this was a, a medical crowd, Especially all about it's, technology. Yeah, it's tech and AI, so it's a different Yeah, different so I'm, I'm showing them videos of robots and surgical wars and like stuff that I knew they would, they would find really interesting you and done valuable. Like, like a robot. <laughs> like. <laughs> Okay, Do some I, dad jokes. I could have, I could have tried this thing afterwards if I'd known. I, I would have approached it so differently, but you don't know till you yeah. get up there well, and everything next, dies. Next time, if that happens, you'll know what to do. A bit over 10 years ago, I was at the old Parliament House, which mm. is a beautiful place yeah, to right. present. Yep. And it was a afternoon, it was a government, big government agency. And 350, 400 people, and I was speaking last. And just before we went on, the data projector blew. And then there was a surge in power and they couldn't fix it because the whole room had lost power supply. So there were three speakers. Uh, the guy at the start was more government and he, he did it okay, a bit boring. The lady before me was talking about stress and you know adapting to situations. Yep. And I thought- <laughs> What a gift. This is awesome. <laughs> this is your gift. Yeah. Like you can go, whoa, hey, talk about adapting. I had a wonderful deck. I had all these slides, had everything prepared. Everyone just let's stand up, take a big breath in because when the shit hits the fan, you've got to reset and let's go again. But she didn't do that and I felt for her. And like you yeah. said before, the audience was wanting her to win. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she kept apologizing. She kept saying, I had a slide here for this. I don't. And she was checking her laptop. It was a car crash. It was awful. Oh. And I really felt for her. And I could see when she came off stage, she looked deflated. I bet. Like deflated. Yep. And exhausted and, and all exhausted the rest. And all yep. that. And then old numb nuts me rocks up, and I, I I had the time to then prepare, but I actually like going off script. Whiz, you know this. We prepare stuff, and it's like, what's he doing now? And I think it helped me massively on this day because I just got a flip chart and said, look, I had all these beautiful slides, and I did a reset. Because I said, like, I really feel. I remember her name was Claire. I said, Claire, I feel like you had all these beautiful preps. So can we all just take a big breath in? And then there's that Hebrew proverb, this too shall pass, we'll get technology. So I just did a reset, which was as much for Claire and me and everyone. And then I just used a flip chart. It was one of the best presentations wow. I've done because I, I spoke and I had some stories, but I knew the content yeah. really well. What I now do for not all of my presentations, but some, I'll just think sometimes, what if it blows up yeah. and I'll write on a sheet of paper? And it's also a good way for my confidence and memory recall. Yeah. What are the key messages on this, and then I'll just do it. It's a bit of a mind map. So if you see my notes, I'll do a mind map like introduction yeah, story. Yeah. It's exactly your running sheet, yeah. but on a page. And I've had it happen to me again, and I, I felt really excited about it. Okay, look, I was excited because yeah, there's no yeah. slide. So that's helped yeah. me massively. So learning for people listening to this, it's pretty rare that that's going to happen. You know, after 3,600 presentations, it's happened to you once. But I think getting off leaning on your slides and thinking how would i tell a story how would i bring the audience in yeah. i found it's it's given the the speaking i do do a bit of a different edge like yeah. bring in a coaching session bring the audience in just makes it more alive yeah i think the other the other really big bomb session i had was um in at the four seasons here in the city and it was the i don't know what it was it's one of these industry associations they've all got acronyms it was an acronym it was that insurance brokers something something and this was about 12 13 years ago and so um i was the dinner keynote firstly dinner figure out if you're a dinner hard, keynote speaker yeah. or not and i don't know that i am i, I sometimes Rock do it star elite Correct. athlete comedian otherwise don't do it don't do it so for whatever reason, they wanted me to do a forty-minute session during the dinner, in anyway, between main and yeah, entree. yeah, shocker. So, uh, and this was about four hundred people, and it was a hot afternoon in summer, 
And these were all brokers who'd come in. This was like a fancy treat for them, like essentially all expenses paid, grog and food. And they they went to town. So they'd started drinking at four, maybe 4.30. Doors opened at six or 6.30. They were plastered. And so then doors opened. And so um, Cal Wilson, bless her heart, was the MC. And so you can imagine she has just done every event. You know, stand-up comedian, she had done the whole lot. And so she couldn't get them. She couldn't get them to stop really? long enough Cal to could. just like welcome to the thing. You know, thanks to the organisers. We're going to have some awards tonight. She did a couple of great jokes. But like people just, it was almost like when you're in a room, it's shouting, 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 shouting. And like maybe it would dip a tiny bit, but not much. Like the people shouting across the tables, they're all just smashed. So she's just like fighting through to the point where she started walking around the room trying to like, you know, this table over here, what are you guys up to? Trying to engage the group, thinking all the tricks to try and get the audience and she just couldn't get them. And then it's my turn to get up and speak. I'm like, what are we going to do? So, what, so pause. Mm -hmm. What were you thinking? If like, you're there watching uh, Cal Wilson, who one of shocker. Australia's funniest comedians, yeah. Cal can't get them. Yeah. You would have absolutely been redlining or did you did – you, chill what you well, I think I wondered if after they'd had entrees maybe if she at least created the platform is if we can get them to just stop for a second and be quiet then that gives me a chance to win them and if they're interested and it was it was a, it was deliberately a fun fast-paced session it wasn't like get out your notes and take take notes or anything it was very very practical if it wasn't very practical it was more just fun and entertaining so I thought if I can just get them if she can quiet them down but she couldn't and so I'm like, walk up on stage, this, this wall of shouting in the room. And so I um, I just pressed on. I feel anxious just listening to you. Shocker. So, but you try all the things. So, you, and all the things are silence. If I stand here quietly long enough, they'll, they'll recognize to stop. Didn't work. Yeah, started that, started the whole like pleading. Okay, I really need your help right now. If you could just help, like, they couldn't even hear to, to like, there was just no ability to get this group at all. So I just plowed on with some content. It was comical. It was just ludicrous. And at the af afterwards, so Cal and I went next door to the bar at this thing and we just polished off a bottle of red wine just to <laughs> commiserate. And she's like, that, I remember her saying, that was the hardest gig I've ever done. And it was just full on. So you have those ones. And I did, instead of a 50-minute, no, it was meant to be a 30 to 40-minute keynote, I did a 15 minutes. I'm like, this is not serving anyone I'm done. And the client was fine with that. Now, like, it was just a so mess. So you put that into context. So the worst one that I've done, and it is the worst, and if anyone's listening to this who was in that presentation, I apologize. This is over 20 years ago. So I was late 20, something, 23 years ago. I was at Phylex, the annual oh, yes. fitness yeah, conference. Yeah, yeah. Have you spoken at Phylex? Yes, yeah, years ago, yep. And it was one of the breakout sessions, about 300 plus people. I was in Tasmania as an athlete and I was an assistant coach at the Institute of Sport as well and I was doing a session on periodization. Right. What do you think I thought as a young, what was I, 26, 27? How do you think I approached it? I or, imagine it's like trying to be cool and win the crowd, like trying to peers. show my knowledge, yeah. my expertise, yeah. which was my insecurity. Right. And that drove the whole presentation. Right. It was data, 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 no story. So it started with 300 to 350 people. After about 10 minutes, 30 or 40 had left. 15 minutes, half the audience had left. So when, when you're and I'll stand, when you're here and you're nervous and it was just slides and I'm talking to the slides, it's everything now, MJ, I know, was just horrible. And then in the end- You literally lost your audience. More than. <laughs> it, it would have been oh, three quarters had left. Wow. And it was, I'd, so I, that's how I knew how that lady felt because, and I went up to- closing up uh, old parliament house i gave her a hug 
and just said, hey, I've bombed. I, I know it feels awful. Use it as your fuel. So I, I made a decision in that moment. That's when I reconnected with Dougie Maloof yeah, and wow. went back and started. Dougie said, young fella, speak for free for 10 years, seven to 10 years, and then you can start speaking for a fee. Wow. I thought because I'm coaching and I'm working with the Tasmanian Institute of Sport and I'm training all these people that I earn this. You know, it's, no, it's my time. I hadn't earned it. I got schooled. It was the hardest but the best lesson I've had because I never – ever, ever will have that happen to me again. Yeah, yeah. One of the things you said before, so in Canberra, the woman before you got up afterwards and you acknowledged her and what she'd done and how hard, I think that's a good tip or a good trick. If you can get up and the opening part of your presentation, acknowledge what you appreciated about the person who spoke before you. Just acknowledge them. Because it's amazing. It just it just shows that it's not all about you. I did it as a caring yeah, right. human being. Because I could, I, oh, it was just, I, I, See, I go there physiologically. Like I'm feeling it. Like Wiz is looking at me. Like I just, oh, it's a it was, shocker. Yeah, it was horrible. Horrible for her. Horrible for the crowd. Yeah. Um, so big learning on that. Mm. Big learning. Hey, on the podcast called the You Project with our good buddy Harps, Craig Harper. Hello, Harps. You said, be cautious of getting in with speakers' bureaus too early. Bureaus are working on behalf of a client. Sixty percent of your work is through bureaus, so you do need to connect with them. They have thousands of speakers on their rosters. So how do you stand out? It is well worth looking at going exclusive with one bureau, so they know you well and they're invested in you. Otherwise, you're one in a sea of speakers. But you can't go too early. I told you I needed you as a young fella. I was coaching Leanne. She was running ovations and I went too early. You need to deliver consistently on all your keynotes slash presentations, build the trust and a clear message, then use a bureau to lift you to the next level. Mm. I think that's what this... So nice words so from you, huh? You Can go. you go, yeah, geez, like, I know my shit. You know, sometimes you look back at stuff you said, I'm like, oh, that was Did good, I wasn't say it? That? There that's, you go. Yeah, well, um, but the whole going too early thing is massive. Like you don't, you don't want to go too early because the industry has a long memory. So do the work in obscurity. I mean, the, the whole public victories are preceded by thousands of private ones. Do the private victories. Do the audiences that no one sees. It's not, no, They're not glamorous, but it's where you're honing your skills. Quoting Dougie Maloof again. Now, God, I will learn so much. Did you work with Doug? Did you have the opportunity? Because you came bit, in that yeah. wave a bit after when I, I started. Yes, yeah, yeah, a little bit. And just, yeah, what a legend. Yeah, so he passed away a bit over a year, probably 18 months ago. God bless his soul. But Doug used to say, speak for free before you start speaking for a fee. Yeah. Go to a wedding, a funeral, a mitzvah, a corporate organization. And I know Pete Sheen did that. I know yeah. Matt Church. So many speakers yeah. were just molded and had that gift of Doug Maloof. Yeah. So I think certainly you don't want to go too early in that sense. But also once you're ready to go to bureaus, once you feel like you're ready, it's also how do you make it easy to sell you? I think that's something I've tried to be really careful in doing. So I provide, when there's a new topic, for instance, I've got promo videos for the new topic. I've got articles, videos, stuff that I can just share with them so that when they're putting together a proposal, it's just, it's copy and paste. It's a whole lot of stuff that's useful for them that's got none of my brand on it. So it's unbranded, so it's what they call bureau friendly. So they can share it and it's just got their logo and their contact details. And then that works a treat. I just, they're, they're partners in the process. So do you do that every year? Do it like at the end of the year or mm. early in the year? So you'd be doing that now or you've done that? I just did that book? before Christmas, yeah. Well, and I tend to call them all. So because I work with all of the different bureau consultants and that's the thing, it's the consultants, not the bureau. So if you like, let's say Saxons or ICMI, they're not like, one group like they're all individual consultants with individual personalities and different industries so, they so specialize you call in everyone from saxton Correct. that you work with yeah everyone from icmi yep. 
Everyone from Claxton. Yeah. Everyone from SNI. The whole deal. The whole yep. deal, yeah. And it's worth it. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a couple of days of doing like, you know, a few hours at a time. And then How do they, you get all their lists? Like, how do you know who's working well, in the organisation? Well, their websites typically have their list of consultants, but also I just have their phone numbers from, you know, working with them over the years and their contact. And that's the beauty of the time over distance thing is that I know them and I know their kids and I know their stories and... It's, it's, it's much more of a friendship now than just a business transaction. That just takes time to build that up. Um, but in terms of, I mean, going back to the question you asked ages ago, like what are some tips and tricks along the way? F- don't be a dick. <laughs> like, yeah, I think it's a really simple one. Like you just, just be kind, be helpful if you can. If you, you know, like working with AV teams, the number of times you see speakers going and they're just difficult to work with, I'm like. Or, or well, we had a big event. It was uh, last year, PwC. Mm. Uh, the outside it was the first year they oh, did it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did you speak at I that? Did that last you did year. last yes, year. Yeah. We, we, we did the year before and we actually helped them set up the framework. Yeah, wow. Yep. And so I was there every week for five weeks, yeah, as you would have been. Yeah. Did you do a keynote or a breakout? I did a breakout, yeah. Breakout. So I had the opening keynote with the wonderful Yemi Pan. And, and what I saw over that period of five weeks is a number of you know, speakers that you and I are friends with didn't acknowledge the AV crew. And I'm just there going, one, you should have been brought up with better manners. Yep. Yeah. Two, what a stupid move. Because you get on with the AV crew, and I've had this and I know you have. I rock up to a different hotel, a different event, and Carl comes and goes, Andrew, we worked together on the CBA event with Matt Common a couple of years ago. Yeah. Mate, thanks for the book. If I've got books there, which I'll always take, yeah. you would take your most recent book. I've got to catch up and start writing a bit more prolifically. I'll give the head AV or one of the AV crew a book. Yeah, great. And it's just, especially if I've got a few, to say, hey, thank you, because we're a partner in this and we deliver really well. That's that's done wonders because then you rock up and they look after you. And it's, it's, I like that. it's common sense. I don't, I don't give away, I, I generally don't give away books much, mainly because whenever I get given books, I rarely read them. Unless I bought them, they sit on my shelf as my intentional. So I actually very rarely give away books. I, I sometimes do, but- I do it to get my sales up. <laughs> No, that's also another we, way to do it. We've got 100,000 copies yeah, of Matchfit. Yeah. I've given away 99,500. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But what I, what I do do with the AV crews, can I get you a coffee? Yeah. Has someone got you some lunch? Because like, this AV crew, they start bumping in often the night before. They'll be there at 7 o'clock or quarter to 7 to get everything checked to go. And then sometimes like the morning tea break, they're not coming out to get a coffee or something to eat because they've got an um, AV check the next crew. And sometimes they get lunch, but often they'll just be there the entire day. So I'll just go, hey, can, can I get you guys something? That's a great idea. And like 90% of the time they go, oh, we're all good. But I tell you what, the difference it makes, you just care enough to ask. And it's a genuine offer. I'm like, I'm going to get a coffee. Would you like one? And... It just, it's little things like that. And that doesn't really return anything to me tangibly, but I just feel like your reputation is so important in this industry. People talk, as you and I know, like the word gets around. And so whether it's the PCO you're dealing with, the AV team, the bureau, the clients, because the beauty of two, if, you, if you're not a dick, if you deal well with clients, the clients then move organizations. And so they may have used you three or four times the there. The best thing on LinkedIn, yep. you see Claire has gone from CBA and she's gone across to Westpac and little message, you're working at Westpac. Do you send a follow-up thank you or a gift to the client that books you? I often think I should, but then I get busy and don't. So We've no. started. It's, it's, a, it's a really good idea. Mate, I ought is, to do it. Yeah. It is. It's a conversation piece that Shannon runs it and I'll call out to Shannon. She does an amazing job. Yeah. Depending on the event, we have a couple of different gifts, and I won't go into the mechanics of it too much. But I, I will honour Keith Abraham because yeah. Keith talks about what do you do before, what do you do during, yeah. what do you do during after, and what do you do forever after. Yeah. 
And I find because I'm you know, running a business and mental skills and I've got yeah. four kids and rock up and do keynotes, I was doing the before well. I, I hope, and the feedback was I was doing the during well, but the after and forever after, I was dropping. The forever after is your database yeah. and your client and, and your that should take care of itself with good admin. But the after, yeah, we will now get back a yep. fruit basket or some flowers or a product. Just to go back, Michael, I really appreciate the business. We've now been working together for X years. Just a bit of a personal story from Andrew and the team. And then when we do our briefing, so we'll go back to every client now and do a follow-up brief and make sure that they've got that. So if anyone's listening to this and I've done that, um, yeah, it's purely done from the right reason, number one. But two, from a relationship and a sales point of view, yeah. it's done wonders for extra bookings. I love that. Yeah, I should do that. So shorter answer is no, longer answer is I should, and it's a great idea. <laughs> well, you may not have done it because you're busy, MJ, busy doing 120. That's a lot of keynotes a year. It is, yeah. 120 a year? Yeah, most years would be about that. So, I mean, a normal week is three, three or four. Sometimes it's five or six a week. That's a lot. I find that hard. I'm mentally you you are one of, or probably the most prolific keynote speaker, just to give it context for people not in the industry. I'll do 50 with everything else. So my, my pass score is 50. That'll be about 40 to 42 keynotes or conference experiences. So we turn it from a keynote to, do you want fries with that? Learned this at McDonald's, seeing my brother who's down at Dolls Point, or I say it was, was at Caring Bar at the time. Took Archie and Mickey through McDonald's on the way home. I was just going to get a bag of apples and some sparkly water. I'm such a nerd, isn't it? <laughs> and I found I've, my kids go, Dad, it's McDonald's. You can't be healthy here. You're a loser of a father. And it was just going to be a quick snack. Yeah. $35 later, I'd ordered a chicken wrap. Archie had McNuggets and a family meal. And as I'm driving along, I just went, I just got upsold by some pimply red-headed young school kid yeah. who's probably 15 who's yeah. been taught sales about called the upsell yeah. and that day that day I went home and I wrote up how do I get an upsell so we mm-hmm. before in the briefing we'll can we build in a diagnostic that we charge for you know can we package right. books so we've got our average spend I won't give you the exact amount but it's up about three to four thousand per keynote because we're doing before yeah. and we're doing after as far as digital platform. So That's probably the um, the benefit of doing mostly direct work is you own the client relationship. So yeah. when I go through a bureau, there's I don't own the client relationship as much. Yeah. Um, unless I get, say, their email or phone number on the day, I, I don't have that. We, we do that with some bureaus. So mm-hmm. it can complicate it. And, and I, I love bureaus because I wouldn't have a speaking business if it wasn't for the support I had for wonderful people like Deb Claxton, yeah. Leanne Christie, uh, Emma at Saxton, who've you know, been supporting me for years and years. But I, I get that it's complex. There's lots of moving parts. Some bureaus, if the brief's right, we've built it in. Yeah, um, right. So then everyone gets a, a little bit more as well. Yeah. yeah but the reason you're so busy and you're not giving after gifts is you're writing books. Okay. Ten books in a period of 20 years is phenomenal. I really like this. It's a good book. When we are in the Gold Coast and I said, let's catch up and do the podcast, and you said, can I wait until after Christmas? Yeah because I've got the new book. I said, mate, makes sense. I said, tell me about the book. Do you remember what happened? No, what happened? I I remember, because it was something I haven't seen in you a lot. You lit up, you stopped, and you smiled, and you said, I'm really proud of this book. Yeah, cool. And I am. This one's been the hardest book by far to write. In terms of the, like, you talk about work that no one sees, the behind the scenes stuff. This has been almost 10 years of work. Um, Lots of reading, lots of just chewing on ideas and doing a lot of the the deep work around stuff that you want to bring to light that's fresh. So, yes, uh, and 
I thought I was onto something, but I wasn't sure. You're never quite sure whether you're onto something. And then I started sending the manuscript to all of the people that I'd referenced their research in the book. And I was nervous. I'm like, what if I send it to these people? And they're like, like you're way off. You know, like these are all the heads of psychology at Yale and well, Cambridge. Well, your quote on the front page is all right. Yeah, no, I must I... read if you want to make a greater impact. Some woman named Mel Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> and then some other guy, some pink guy, I think he's only written about 10 bestsellers himself <laughs> with his brother. Uh, Dan Pink has said a timely guide to restarting the lost art of civil disclosure. So restoring. The restoring. But it has been like, that was a really cool process. Like just getting a lot of the people who I've looked up to for years and admired their work and for them to read and go, this is like, this is a really fresh, significant, important, timely book, all that stuff. So that's what's exciting. I'm like all this time and energy invested in this thing. And particularly during the COVID years, I really went deep writing this book because I'd started to write this book five times. Maybe six. That. So I'd start to write it. I'd start working on it. And then another book would crop up. So we caught up important. in COVID. It must have been yeah. COVID 2020, one of the lockdowns opens yeah. up. It would have been 2021. Yeah. So we're talking three, two and a half, three years ago. Yeah. So I thought you were just starting then. No. No, at that point I had a first draft. And at that point the first draft was, get this, what was that, three – 306,000 words. Like it was a monster. Okay. And tell everyone how many books you read, scanned, looked at. Yeah, so the books I must have done, I think I read about 124, 125 books and scanned probably 1,200 articles as in read, digested, referenced, lots, heaps and heaps. So because this is a whole new area for me. I've spent so many years talking about where the world's heading from a technology perspective and, and the strategy required to stay ahead of change and all that stuff. This is the psychology side of why people don't change. Like, what's the whole nature of stubbornness? I'm like, if I'm going to go into the latest stuff around neuroscience and behavioral psychology, I can't just read one or two books and just piece a few things together. Like, this is this is important work. And it's, is it really new for you? So th this is there's mm. a concept in lag time. So there's a concept in coaching psychology called lag time. Right. Yep. How others see me is different to how I see myself. Yeah, right. Yeah, I caught up with a, an athlete. I, I won't mention his name. But he's about to hit the stratosphere overseas. And a few things have happened over the weekend and he was catching up with me. And I taught him this term. And I said, so now everyone sees you're ready for the global stage. Do you see yourself? And he went, yeah, I do, man. Wow. But I feel nervous. I said, that's lag time. Yeah. So lag time is how everyone else sees you. And it, it sometimes takes time for you to catch up. Yeah. I've seen you doing this shoes for ten years. Yeah, wow. That's I hadn't I hadn't heard that or thought about that before. Yeah, when we caught up, we used to catch up at KPMG. We used to have mm. our little corporate dates yes, that's on, right. on the yeah. water at Barangaroo. It was about every six or twelve months. Mm. And when you told me where you were evolving and where you were speaking, I just put you in this genre. So when I heard you say that, that it's a bit of a shift, and it was almost like you were asking for permission. Yeah, yeah. I reckon you've been doing it for if not 10, five. Well, it's encouraging. And what's been great too, because I only came out in October here and then no late November in the States. And so I've started the keynote off the back of this only late last year. So I've done the keynote and that's when you know, talk about the hundreds of hours of prep. It's to like that keynote was all new. There was not like, you know, pull this and this and you know, tried and tested stories and jokes and like, no, no, they're like all new. Like in a car, isn't it? Oh, Fish my. <laughs> well, and it's, 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 it is, it's, it, to me, it's a, always a scary thing because you're like, this is so new. What if it doesn't resonate with the market or it just feels like too much of a gear shift in content that people have got me in a certain box and this is such a disruptive gear shift to how they see what I'm about. 
that essentially it kills my branding in its existing form, but also isn't relevant enough in its new form. And yeah, like you shoot yourself in the foot type thing. So yeah, the response has been super encouraging. And that's been the sort of feedback. Like this just makes sense. It's a logical next step in the work you've been doing. I'm like, that's cool. Cause I wasn't sure that it would be such a, a natural evolution mm. of content. So when I say that to you, I've been mm. seeing you, I think the audience has seen you doing this for five years yeah. and you go, huh, what, what do you think? Like, have you caught up yet? Do, do you own this now? Do you feel like it? Or are you still growing yeah. into it? It's yep. like when one of your kids put your shoes on and goes, oh, yeah. I'm wearing daddy's shoes, mummy's yeah. shoes. They don't fit, you idiot. You can't say that to your kids. Yes. Yeah. Are you growing into the shoes I still? Am. Yeah, probably, I would say only late last year. So, and it was the getting the prep ready for podcasts. That was the thing that was a really important process and really hard. So taking a, a large manuscript and then trying to condense it down to sound bites that are simple without being simplistic, because they're complicated ideas and the science behind it's complicated, but you want to make it accessible. So that was a really important process. So talking to the wall, this is why I did so much that prep for this content, because I'm I'm like, when I preparing that content and then also the not just the full keynote, but the 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 showcase one, I'm taking really complicated things and making them super, super simple and accessible. That required the talking out, talking out, talking out, trying to chunk it down. Was it Mark Twain who wrote a letter to his contemporaries? Sorry about the Phobos letter. I didn't have <laughs> yes. time to make this succinct. Yeah, yeah. right? To, yep. to get stuff sharp and punchy and really crystal clear can take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. Well, it does. And I think what I did initially with this, so I did the first podcast interview I did on this with was, was with Julie Masters. Do you know Julie? Yeah, well? Jules. Yeah, so isn't she living in Spain she's in now? in Spain now. I think, yeah, I don't know how long they're there for, but like a, a, an extended period of time. They're having fun, it looks like. But I did an interview with her and – I mean, she's so lovely, but her feedback afterwards was was good. But you're sitting in the you're sitting in the seat of reporter. You're reporting on other people's ideas, and trying to be a faithful reporter of what's being said in this whole topic. But you're not the person who's the you're not wearing it comfortably. If you're the expert, you've got you own this. So it's really good feedback. That little tip. Tell you a little secret. Yeah. When we spoke in the Gold Coast and you mm. said you're going to be doing podcasts and talking late in the year or early in the year, yeah. I said, let's go early in the year yeah. for two reasons. One is I wanted to break, freshen up. The yeah. second one is I thought you'd have a better message after you've done a few podcasts. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll like, know exactly the same on a concept. So now mental skills, lag time. People have seen me as a mental skills coach for years. Yeah. yeah. When I was a fitness trainer, I was always talking about mindsets and until Mark O'Neill. Hello, Mark, who's the football manager at Parramatta. He said to me, you're ready for this. And that's when I went for the interview at Parra. So I had to catch up with that. But the first few presentations, podcasts, you're getting your reps and sets in. So it takes time. Yeah. So I actually wanted to wait until you've done a few. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is. is, It's a learning curve. And yeah, I've still, I, I feel like I'm getting there. There's still room to grow. This is a very new thing for me. Like this whole mode, like podcasting is a different, like it's, I've got my oil plates on still, maybe my P plates now, but like it's still I'd very different. P, well, it, it's different because you're not on stage as the talent. It's a conversation. I've learned a lot. Wiz, do you remember the first few podcasts, sorry, first few conversations I had at people? Do you, do you remember when we I first started doing this? A few of them all a while ago. Are they as bad as I think? Probably not as bad as you think, but... They're not. They're not great. <laughs> Talking over. Wow. Not having space. I think a conversation. You've got a great talent. A good mate like you. Ask a few questions. Yeah. I want to give a bit of insight. I don't just want to be yeah. a talking head or a starfish podcaster. But it's a dialogue. So it is a shift from on stage. Dun, 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 dun. Very different. Yep. Yeah. Just sink in. Have a good conversation. Yeah. 
you gave so much great content on speaking, on what you do to, to get your stories and the whole mastery on what we do about the physical and psychological prep and then the tools and tricks of the trade. I've got a whole other section on the book, <laughs> but I think two, two, different, two different areas. One is we're going to run out of time, mm-hmm. but more so, can we come back? Mm-hmm. I'd like to do a separate podcast mm-hmm. on the science of stubbornness. Yeah, cool. Because when I read the book, the thing that – and ladies and gents, I'm also doing this too – allure you go buy it it's a bloody good book so rather <laughs> than talking about chapter one chapter yeah, three yeah, yeah. let's come back and we'll talk about the the science of stubbornness yeah, cool. it's a refreshing approach on behavior change because yeah. i've heard a lot about the house of change and i've heard a lot with the masters in coaching psychology what are all the change frameworks i haven't seen a book that digs into stubbornness like you do. So can you give us just a quick little frame to whet the appetite and we'll come back and do another podcast? I think that the big discovery that drove this book was this notion that for three or 400 years, we've been taught, consciously or unconsciously, the best way to change someone's mind is to give them a rock solid argument. And this idea that if you give someone evidence, if you give them a good reason to change their mind, they'll see reason, that humans are reasonable And so therefore we do that constantly. We do that in terms of public education campaigns and trying to lead people. And the tricky thing is we've discovered not only is that not true, but the opposite is true. The harder you push, the more evidence you give, the more data you pile on, often the more stubborn people become. And so that's the hardest thing I find with leaders who are trying to get a change agenda through is they're not they're misdiagnosing the point of resistance. They think it's a knowledge gap. The reason people aren't seeing the light and coming on board with the change is because we haven't educated them enough yet. And, and that's not it content. at all. Correct. And so that's not it at all. It's often very different things that are causing them to dig their heels in. In fact, the, the great irony is often the people the things that people are most stubborn about, deep down they know are a good idea. They think there's value in it. But it's like unless they've arrived there on their own or they feel they've got some sense of agency, um, or feel they can change their mind without having to admit they're an idiot. This is a hard thing. Ego is so involved in this. And so trying to give people space to change their mind without feeling shame or embarrassment is just it's half, the, half the process. So a lot of it is about some of the, the – what is it that causes people to get stuck, and then how do you help people move out of that position? Yeah, well, you're open to coming back in a couple of months. Yeah, we'll get you it. to come back and we'll do it. Because it is it's a science, and I've never heard a position like that. Because we talk about the science of change. And the science, you know, we've got evolution, but you do, you've got robust research and references. There's neuroscience, there's behavioral scientists, there's evolution, like with what happens with our default, you know, primary function on the brain. Yeah, I just haven't seen that. So yeah, cool. listening you, to this and you love MJ, which everyone is, even if you don't present what you spoke about today, just go through and take out presenting and talk about communication. It's exactly the same. And I think if people can take a sliver of the dedication, the due diligence and the process you do to stepping up on stage to the way they communicate, I think it's going to help people massively. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And what I would say is take out the word speaking also because to me, you're just communicating with a group. Like I, I, I try, I, I flinch at that idea of getting up to give a speech or even give a presentation. There's something so active and performative about that. To me, I'm getting on the stage and sharing some ideas. And and bring the audience on a journey, having some fun. Like that that posture is the right posture to me. I think the moment it's a performance, people feel it. That fourth wall goes up. You hear about the fourth wall in the world of theatre. They're, they're excluded. They're there to observe. It's a passive mode. And that's not an audience. You want to have it. It's, it's, there's no fourth wall. You're just having a conversation. I like that. It's a slightly elevated mm, version of yourself. Correct, yeah. Now, is there a question I haven't asked you that you'd like me to ask? Or is there a question you'd like to flip and ask me? Oh, that's a great question in itself. I think the big thing would be 
know, we, we talked about the fact that we, you know, money hasn't come up in the conversation. And I think that's probably something that's that's important to clarify. I'm very financially driven, very financially savvy. Oh, I you not- charge money, do you? I do charge Shit. money. Would you believe? We've been speaking for a whole <laughs> amount of time about yep. the fear of public speaking, the art mm. of presenting including how to prepare your content and stories, how to prepare your body and your brain, how to prepare your props. We've spoken about tips and tricks over the years, and we've spoken about your 10th book, The Power of... Oh, I haven't spoken about money. It's good we haven't. Because to me, I mean, the money is- You know, a, I consciously yep, didn't want to talk good. about it. It's great. So I think that's the thing we haven't talked about, which I'm glad we didn't. It's, and it's worth clarifying why. That, I mean, it's 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 a business. And I'm, I know my numbers. I'm very good with my numbers in business. So it's not that I'm oblivious to it. He's doing okay, ladies and gents. You do the maths. You do the maths. 120 presentations, and you charge, and you should. You're you know up there in the the Australian and global speakers. But um, yeah, interesting. It hasn't come into the conversation at all. No. So I think I feel like if you're adding value and you're you're leading with integrity and you're just doing a bloody good job, the value like you will find your market and it'll pay you well. Um, I mean, it is, it's an amazing industry. It's a privilege to do what we do professionally. I still have moments where I'm like, I can't believe we get to do this. Like, it's quite crazy, really. But it is such a gift. It's such a privilege. I try and never forget that. Um, but to me, it's about starting with what's going to be valuable and fresh and useful for an audience, doing it with excellence, rather than starting with, this is what I want to earn. How do I do that? What do I need to maneuver to make that happen? You can feel that in the meeting. You can see that on the resources. And I think you can smell it when they get up on stage. Correct. Yep. Yeah. 100%. Here's what I've learned today. I was looking forward to this. I look, I love all podcasts, but when I know someone like you, I was wanting to double click on where you come from, what's your drive. And I had an assumption and you've confirmed it. You're very purpose driven. Mm, so your purpose is to create great products and presentations and to make a real shift in people. Yep. Sometimes in this profession of speaking, coaching, mentoring, teaching, YouTubing, podcasting, influencing, thought leadership, it comes from a ego or it's a performance driven. And, and, and similar to what I, I talk about in sport, that can get you started. So if an athlete wants to make the team, the games, the Olympics, if it comes from about performing in the first few years, it'll get you there. Yeah. But it's an unsustainable fuel source. Yeah, correct. Because yep. when you're not performing, because you look in the mirror and your ego is inextricably linked with your performance, <laughs> yes, yeah. at some stage you will get dropped, not selected, not on the team, and then what happens? So I can see for you, and purpose is three components. Number one, purpose is not about you. Well, I made the mistake on stage at that fitness conference, it was about me, but I can see this is about others. Two, it's future focused. So you're seeing you're going somewhere with it. And three, excites the living daylights out of you. So I can totally see you on purpose. That's great. Love it. Well, it's been great to chat. Thank you for making the time. People who want to book you, read you, listen to you, or for executives who want to get you in to work with a small group of eight or (laughs) ten. (laughs) <laughs> My sweet spot. Yeah, probably best place to connect. So LinkedIn, I do a lot of, I'm pretty present on LinkedIn. So people can find me there or the website is michaelmcqueen.net. M-C-Q-U-E-N. We'll Correct. put that in the show notes. Yeah, that's it. MJ, thanks, mate. Today's been a gift. It's a pleasure. Thank you, mate. Hi, everyone. This is Angela Poon, Strive Stronger Operations Director, and I'm in the recording studio with our Strive Stronger Digital Wellbeing Expert, Dr. Christy Goodwin. Christy, thank you so much for joining me on the Reflections today. 
Thank you for having me. Great to be here. We've just finished listening to the episode with Andrew and Michael McQueen and I thought it would be great to bring you in because you've had experience speaking on stages in the education world and now also in the corporate world. So as someone that has spent hundreds if not thousands of hours uh, speaking, what were your thoughts and takeaways on the episode today? Well, first and foremost, thank you for the sneak preview of the episode. Um, I have indulged in listening. I'm a huge fan of both Michael and um, Andrew's work. So to hear the two of them together felt like a real preview and a real privilege. First and foremost, the one thing that stood out overwhelmingly above everything else was that even though Michael McQueen is probably one of the most accomplished in-demand, you know, most popular speakers in Australia, if not internationally, the huge volume of practice that he does. As Andrew talked about in the episode, his reps and sets. Uh, Michael talks about how even though he is, you know, a very accomplished speaker, he still spends countless hours preparing and practicing, um, you know, speaking to the wall. I know he spoke about- Yeah, that's right. The 200 hours, (laughs) that was incredible. Yeah, 200 hours to, to fine tune a new keynote. So that, if, if I'm honest, and I think Andrew would agree, um, that that took me by surprise, even as a speaker myself, to hear that somebody who is at, at the elite level of his particular you know, area of expertise as a, as a well-known speaker, still dedicates that profound time to practicing um, and refining his craft. And for me, that was refreshing because I still do a lot of practice as a speaker, And I thought you'd get to a tipping point. Michael has now confirmed that there is no tipping point, that the practice just continues exponentially. (laughs) Yeah, and often as people from the outside, we all only just see the tip of the iceberg when somebody is practicing their craft. And when the likes of Michael are speaking on stage and you see that ease and that comfort, and it looks like it comes so easy to them. And often when I see Andrew speaking, I comment on on the way he does it as well. I'm like, that, that, you, they look so comfortable and at ease and he'll be commenting or reflecting saying well Andrew that takes hours and hours and thousands of hours and years of practice to get it to this stage and sometimes we forget about that as somebody that's sitting in the audience and it was good to hear it to appreciate the amount of effort that goes into making it look easy. Yeah, and I think what I just took from something you just said then is that the effort that you put into practicing and refining makes you then look effortless on stage. So that effort yields effortlessness further down the track. And I just, I found that such a refreshing and if not inspiring perspective to hear that that's really what Michael does as a very well-known speaker. And I'm not a speaker by any means, but I do do some of our Strive Stronger. I do quite a few of our Strive Stronger webinars and workshops. So I, my when I listened to it, I learned from it more from that perspective. And it was good to hear about the amount of uh, time that it takes to go into it because when I prepare, sometimes, and Andrew's come back and said, Ange, you can't write a script. You, you, got to just, you know your stuff, go into it and just go and be present in the moment, which I totally get. But when Michael was talking about, he actually scripts it, I felt a sense of validation. I'm like, see, he does it too. <laughs> and what I found interesting, Michael talking about really nailing those first 30 seconds. If you really start, I've heard that saying, you know, start on a downhill slope. 
once you get that forward momentum and off you go, I think that makes such a profound difference as a speaker. Um, I know from my experience, if those first 30 to 60 seconds, you know, the joke you thought might land doesn't with a live audience um, or, or something just doesn't go right. Michael very vulnerably shared, you know, one of his digital disasters with the slides not working for the first 25 of the 50 minutes. But if you really can nail those, that, that first opening, let's say 30 to 60 seconds, it really does have a profound difference. And it's about those, uh, I think, about ca- calming the nerves and about that preparation beforehand. Because one thing for me, I'm not a natural public speaker. And when Aunt Michael talked about changing that mindset, so my biggest takeaway was thinking about going into a session or a presentation not with the focus on me but with that focus on the audience that to me was a great way to shift my way of thinking and to take that focus and that really helped just even thinking about that going of course put the audience as your hero and stop focusing on yourself that really helps ease the nerves does that really happen to you christy in terms of nervousness and that tension at the beginning what is it that you do yeah it was a wise mentor years ago who said something similar to me that when you are nervous it's a reflection that you're focusing on you rather than how can i get on the stage and serve this audience the best way that i can Um, I really loved what Michael and Andrew also said in terms of the audience actually want you to succeed. They're cheering you on. And so I think if you warm to those two pieces, that they're wanting you to succeed um, and that focusing on how can I deliver best to this audience, I guess it removes, as we've, we've said, that pressure from yourself feeling like you need to perform. Make that audience your hero. And I think it does a huge amount to alleviate those nerves that often persist before we speak in any format. Yeah, I wrote that down, that uh, line that Michael said, the audience is thinking, can I rest and listen? Yes. And I'm like, of course, that's how I feel when I get into a session as well. And if I'm nervous and nervous energy travels, Absolutely. The audience is going to feel nervous as well. So it's about settling those nerves at the beginning, shifting that state, uh, which Andrew always talks about those uh, refocus moments at the beginning where you think about your content, your context and your preparation in order to just be fully present. So those were some like of the tips that I've taken away from it. Was there anything else that you took away? There was one more, um, or two, but one more formal, one less formal, and that was hearing Michael say, just be you, but be an amplified version of you on the stage. I think for me myself, and I know this has happened with other speakers that I've um, you know, had the opportunity to converse with, we often feel the pressure to behave in a certain way. You know, I have to be the entertainer, I have to be the comedian. I have to conform to some sort of stereotype of what a conventional, you know, well-known speaker looks like. And Michael spoke very candidly about how he's none of those things. He's certainly engaging, having had the privilege of hearing him speak in person and online, uh, but he talked about how he's authentic to to who he is. And I think that's really reassuring as a speaker, Um, but just reminding ourselves that we have to be sort of that amplified version um, when we are online or on stage. Yeah, that reminds me of, and I've spoken about this story before, where Andrew asked me to run a webinar and I did it uh, without him, and I thought I had to, to do. Uh, I thought I had to adopt his style. 
which is high energy, fast paced. And when I finished that session, I was exhausted. <laughs> and it didn't, I was, I was so in my own head trying to uh, be someone that I wasn't, that I wasn't connecting with the audience. So that was a big learning experience for me. And in the reflections um, afterwards, post that workshop, Andrew said, you just need to be you. So that is something that I think is a good ex- learning experience, whether or not you're speaking on a stage, whether or not you're in a workshop, whether or not you're just presenting to uh, as uh, to your team or to a um, as a speech in a wedding. These tips are just so applicable to various aspects of when you're presenting um, and showing up, being you and being your authentic self, I think is just so important. It is, and especially um, something to be mindful of if we are speaking as part of a day's event. So very easy for us to try and emulate the energy, the style of the previous speaker. Say we get up to deliver a workshop and we watch the previous workshop, we know that can have a really strong contagion effect. So I think a really good reminder, um, it's so much easier just to be yourself. As you said, I think the minute you go into your head, I know for me, the minute I start to think, hang on, what statistic do I need to to share? What neurobiological term should I weave in here? The minute I step into my head, I lose that flow and that connection with the audience. Um, So integral, I think, to stay as you, um, but that amplified version of you. When you said about that contagion effect, the last uh, reflections that I have is about thinking about energy. When I was first working at Strive Stronger and all the learnings I had from presentation was from my KPMG days and it was all about making sure that you know what you're talking about, making sure you get the slides right and your content ready, had all your facts and figures beforehand. And you never think about this concept of energy. So now when Andrew and I sit down to think about what we're going to present on for a particular workshop and I have this tendency to go straight to my slides, what are the content things? No, 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 take a step back and think about, well, what is it that you're trying to convey? What are the key messages? And then think about energy. What are the energy levels? When are you going to bring the energy up because they've covered a lot of content and um, take that energy back down during those reflection moments so that you're pulsating to keep that that session interesting. So that's something that I now um, think more consciously about to bring your audience on a journey. Yes, and that energy is so critical to the audience receiving your content. Um, I was having a conversation with a mentor at the end of last year and she said a successful keynote from her perspective is only around 30% of your content, 70% is usually dictated by your delivery, so your energy, um, you you know, the, the way you convey that message, your stage presence. So I think we wrap ourselves up and really focus really narrowly on the content and the, I guess the more mechanical side of speaking, but really as humans, our most fundamental psychological need is to connect, connecting through our energy and connecting through the stories that we tell and connecting by circling back to what we just spoke about, being your authentic self. You know, you can smell somebody a mile away when they are being inauthentic and off character. Um, so I think that was a, another really powerful reminder. 
the last one I want to sneak in it gave me a really good giggle and it was hearing Michael swear, don't be a dick. And I just <laughs> think that's such sage advice because, it, you know, I think we forget we are dealing, whether we're dealing with a bureau or somebody who's booking us to speak, we're dealing with humans. And I just think that's a really pertinent reminder of whether you're a professional speaker or not, just not to be a dick. I think that's just good advice, as whether or not it's applying to the speaking world or to any other facets of your life. That's just sage advice for being a human being. Oh, and I have to tell you, I, I, I'm eating humble pie here, and this is a public apology if my husband ever listens. My husband often says to my sons, because we've got three boys, like the golden rule in life is just don't be a dick. And I've always said that's really inappropriate. You know, we don't use that sort of language. We need to, to wrap that up in in better vernacular and language that but they listen and they get it and so i'm acknowledging if michael mcqueen says that that's really (laughs) important advice then it is totally fine well a big green tick for your husband then on that one (laughs) (laughs) i really enjoyed this reflection session with you christy thank you so much for sharing oh hello who do we have here this is ashton he's a poor troller today hi ashton Hi, Angela. You met Angela at Mummy's Book Launch. Oh, well, I'll let you go. Looks like you've got some mummy. Yeah, good timing. Thank you so much for that, Christy. And I will speak again. Sounds good. Take care. You too. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, Ashton. Bye. Oh, no, now he's speaking up.